1: Chapter Seventeen of The Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. She was not praying, she was trembling, trembling all over. Vibration was easy to her, was in fact too constant with her, and she found herself now humming like a smitten harp. She only asked, however, to put on the cover, to case herself again in brown holland but she wished to resist her excitement, and the attitude of devotion, which she kept for some time, seemed to help her to be still. She intensely rejoiced that Caspar Goodwood was gone. There was something in having thus got rid of him that was like the payment, for a stamped receipt, of some debt too long on her mind. As she felt the glad relief, she bowed her head a little lower. The sense was there, throbbing in her heart it was part of her emotion, but it was a thing to be ashamed of. It was profane and out of place. It was not for some ten minutes that she rose from her knees, and even when she came back to the sitting-room her tremor had not quite subsided. It had had verily two causes. Part of it was to be accounted for by her long discussion with Mr. Goodwood, but it might be feared that the rest was simply the enjoyment she found in the exercise of her power. She sat down in the same chair again and took up her book, but without going through the form of opening the volume. She leaned back with that low, soft, aspiring murmur with which she often uttered her response to accidents of which the brighter side was not superficially obvious, and yielded to the satisfaction of having refused two ardent suitors in a fortnight. That love of liberty of which she had given Caspar Goodwood so bold a sketch, was as yet almost exclusively theoretic. She had not been able to indulge it on a large scale. But it appeared to her she had done something. She had tasted of the delight, if not of battle, at least of victory. She had done what was truest to her plan. In the glow of this consciousness the image of Mr. Goodwood taking his sad walk homeward through the dingy town presented itself with a certain reproachful force so that, as at the same moment the door of the room was opened, she rose with an apprehension that he had come back. But it was only Henrietta Stackpole returning from her dinner. Miss Stackpole immediately saw that our young lady had been through something, and indeed the discovery demanded no great penetration. She went straight up to her friend, who received her without a greeting." Isabel's elation in having sent Caspar Goodwood back to America presupposed her being in a manner glad he had come to see her, but at the same time she perfectly remembered Henrietta had had no right to set a trap for her. "'Has he been here, dear?' the latter yearningly asked. Isabel turned away, and for some moments answered nothing. "'You acted very wrongly,' she declared at last. "'I acted for the best. I only hope you acted as well. "'You're not the judge. I can't trust you,' said Isabel. This declaration was unflattering, but Henrietta was much too unselfish to heed the charge it conveyed. She cared only for what it intimated with regard to her friend. "'Isabel Archer,' she observed with equal abruptness and solemnity, "'if you marry one of these people I'll never speak to you again.' Before making so terrible a threat, you had better wait till I'm asked," Isabel replied. Never having said a word to Miss Stackpole about Lord Warburton's overtures, she had now no impulse whatever to justify herself to Henrietta by telling her that she had refused that nobleman. Oh, you'll be asked quick enough, once you get off on the continent. Annie Clymer was asked three times in Italy. Poor, plain little Annie. Well, if Annie Clymer wasn't captured, "'Why should I be? "'I don't believe Annie was pressed, but you'll be.' "'That's a flattering conviction,' said Isabel without alarm. "'I don't flatter you, Isabel. "'I tell you the truth,' cried her friend. "'I hope you don't mean to tell me that you didn't give Mr. Goodwood some hope. "'I don't see why I should tell you anything. "'As I said to you just now, I can't trust you. "'But since you're so much interested in Mr. Goodwood, "'I won't conceal from you.' that he returns immediately to America. "'You don't mean to say you've sent him off?' Henrietta almost shrieked. "'I asked him to leave me alone. And I ask you the same, Henrietta.' Miss Stackpole glittered for an instant with dismay, and then passed to the mirror over the chimney-piece and took off her bonnet. "'I hope you've enjoyed your dinner,' Isabel went on. But her companion was not to be diverted by frivolous propositions. Do you know where you're going, Isabel Archer? Just now I'm going to bed, said Isabel with persistent frivolity. Do you know where you're drifting? Henrietta pursued, holding out her bonnet delicately. No, I haven't the least idea, and I find it very pleasant not to know. A swift carriage of a dark night, rattling with four horses over roads that one can't see-that's my idea of happiness. Mr. Goodwood certainly didn't teach you to say such things as that, like the heroine of an immoral novel,' said Miss Stackpole. "'You're drifting to some great mistake.' Isabel was irritated by her friend's interference, yet she still tried to think what truth this declaration could represent. She could think of nothing that diverted her from saying, "'You must be very fond of me, Henrietta, to be willing to be so aggressive.' "'I love you intensely, Isabel,' said Miss Stackpole with feeling. "'Well, if you love me intensely, let me as intensely alone. I asked that of Mr. Goodwood, and I must also ask it of you.' "'Take care you're not let alone too much.' "'That's what Mr. Goodwood said to me. I told him I must take the risks.' "'You're a creature of risks. You make me shudder,' cried Henrietta." "'When does Mr. Goodwood return to America?' "'I don't know. He didn't tell me.' "'Perhaps you didn't inquire,' said Henrietta, with the note of righteous irony. "'I gave him too little satisfaction to have the right to ask questions of him.' This assertion seemed to Miss Stackpole for a moment to bid defiance to comment, but at last she exclaimed, "'Well, Isabel, if I didn't know you, I might think you were heartless.' "'Take care.' said Isabel. You're spoiling me. I'm afraid I've done that already. I hope at least, Miss Stackpole added, that he may cross with any climber." Isabel learned from her the next morning that she had determined not to return to Garden Court, where old Mr. Touchett had promised her a renewed welcome, but to await in London the arrival of the invitation that Mr. Bantling had promised her from his sister Lady Pencil. Miss Stackpole related very freely her conversation with Ralph Touchett's sociable friend, and declared to Isabel that she really believed she had now got hold of something that would lead to something. On the receipt of Lady Pencil's letter—Mr. Bandling had virtually guaranteed the arrival of this document—she would immediately depart for Bedfordshire, and if Isabel cared to look out for her impressions in the interviewer she would certainly find them. Henrietta was evidently going to see something of the inner life this time do you know where you're drifting henrietta stackpole isabel asked imitating the tone in which her friend had spoken the night before i'm drifting to a big position that of the queen of american journalism if my next letter isn't copied all over the west i'll swallow my pen wiper She had arranged with her friend Miss Annie Clymer, the young lady of the Continental Offers, that they should go together to make those purchases which were to constitute Miss Clymer's farewell to a hemisphere in which she at least had been appreciated, and she presently repaired to German Street to pick up her companion. Shortly after her departure Ralph Touchett was announced, and as soon as he came in Isabel saw he had something on his mind. He very soon took his cousin into his confidence. He had received from his mother a telegram to the effect that his father had had a sharp attack of his old malady, that she was much alarmed, and that she begged he would instantly return to garden court. On this occasion, at least, Mrs. Touchett's devotion to the electric wire was not open to criticism. "'I've judged it best to see the great doctor Sir Matthew Hope first,' Ralph said. "'By great good luck he's in town. He's to see me at half-past twelve, and I shall make sure of his coming down to Garden Court, which he will do the more readily as he has already seen my father several times, both there and in London. There's an express at 2.45, which I shall take, and you'll come back with me, or remain here a few days longer, exactly as you prefer. "'I shall certainly go with you,' Isabel returned. "'I don't suppose I can be of any use to my uncle, but if he's ill I shall like to be near him.' "'I think you're fond of him.' "'said Ralph, with a certain shy pleasure in his face. "'You appreciate him, which all the world hasn't done. "'The quality's too fine.' "'I quite adore him,' Isabel said after a moment. "'That's very well. "'After his son, he's your greatest admirer.' "'She welcomed this assurance, "'but she gave secretly a small sigh of relief "'at the thought that Mr. Touchett was one of those admirers "'who couldn't propose to marry her.' This, however, was not what she spoke. She went on to inform Ralph that there were other reasons for her not remaining in London. She was tired of it and wished to leave it. And then Henrietta was going away, going to stay in Bedfordshire. In Bedfordshire? With Lady Pencil, the sister of Mr. Bantling, who has answered for an invitation. Ralph was feeling anxious, but at this he broke into a laugh. Suddenly, none the less, his gravity returned. "'Bantling's a man of courage, but if the invitation should get lost on the way—' "'I thought the British post-office was impeccable.' "'The good Homer sometimes nods,' said Ralph. "'However,' he went on more brightly, "'the good Bantling never does, and whatever happens he'll take care of Henrietta.' Ralph went to keep his appointment with Sir Matthew Hope, and Isabel made her arrangements for quitting Pratt's hotel. Her uncle's danger touched her nearly, and while she stood before her open trunk, looking about her vaguely for what she should put into it, the tears suddenly rose to her eyes. It was perhaps for this reason that when Ralph came back at two o'clock to take her to the station she was not yet ready. He found Miss Stackpole, however, in the sitting-room, where she had just risen from her luncheon, and this lady immediately expressed her regret at his father's illness. "'He's a grand old man.' she said, he's faithful to the last. If it's really to be the last, pardon my alluding to it, but you must often have thought of the possibility, I'm sorry that I shall not be at Garden Court. You'll amuse yourself much more in Bedfordshire. I shall be sorry to amuse myself at such a time, said Henrietta with much propriety. But she immediately added, I should like so to commemorate the closing scene. My father may live a long time said Ralph simply. Then, adverting to topics more cheerful, he interrogated Miss Stackpole as to her own future. Now that Ralph was in trouble, she addressed him in a tone of larger allowance and told him that she was much indebted to him for having made her acquainted with Mr. Bantling. "'He has told me just the things I want to know,' she said. "'All the society items and all about the royal family. I can't make out that what he tells me about the royal family is much to their credit.' but he says that's only my peculiar way of looking at it. Well, all I want is that he should give me the facts. I can put them together quick enough, once I've got them.' And she added that Mr. Bantling had been so good as to promise to come and take her out that afternoon. "'To take you where?' Ralph ventured to inquire. "'To Buckingham Palace. He's going to show me over it, so that I may get some idea how they live.' "'Ah,' said Ralph, "'we leave you in good hands.' The first thing we shall hear is that you're invited to Windsor Castle. If they ask me, I shall certainly go. Once I get started, I'm not afraid. But for all that—' Henrietta added in a moment. "'I'm not satisfied. I'm not at peace about Isabel. "'What is her last misdemeanor? "'Well, I've told you before, and I suppose there's no harm in my going on. I always finish a subject that I take up. Mr. Goodwood was here last night.' Ralph opened his eyes; he even blushed a little-his blush being the sign of an emotion somewhat acute. He remembered that Isabel, in separating from him in Winchester Square, had repudiated his suggestion that her motive in doing so was the expectation of a visitor at Pratt's Hotel, and it was a new pang to him to have to suspect her of duplicity. On the other hand, he quickly said to himself, what concern was it of his that she should have made such an appointment with a lover? had it not been thought graceful in every age that young ladies should make a mystery of such appointments ralph gave miss Stackpole a diplomatic answer i should have thought that with the views you expressed to me the other day this would satisfy you perfectly that he should come to see her that was very well as far as it went it was a little plot of mine i let him know that we were in london and when it had been arranged that i should spend the evening out i sent him a word the word we just utter to the wise I hoped he would find her alone. I won't pretend I didn't hope that you'd be out of the way. He came to see her, but he might as well have stayed away." Isabel was cruel. And Ralph's face lighted with the relief of his cousin's not having shown duplicity. I don't exactly know what passed between them, but she gave him no satisfaction. She sent him back to America. Poor Mr. Goodwood, Ralph sighed. Her only idea seems to be to get rid of him. "'Henrietta went on. "'Poor Mr. Goodwood!' Ralph repeated. "'The exclamation, it must be confessed, was automatic. "'It failed exactly to express his thoughts, "'which were taking another line. "'You don't say that as if you felt it. "'I don't believe you care.' "'Ah,' said Ralph, "'you must remember that I don't know this interesting young man, "'that I've never seen him.' "'Well, I shall see him, "'and I shall tell him not to give up,' If I didn't believe Isabel would come round, Miss Stackpole added, well, I'd give up myself. I mean, I'd give her up. End of chapter seventeen. Chapter eighteen of the Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. It had occurred to Ralph that, in the conditions, Isabel's parting with her friend might be of a slightly embarrassed nature, and he went down to the door of the hotel in advance of his cousin, who, after a slight delay, followed with the traces of an unaccepted remonstrance, as he thought, in her eyes. The two made the journey to Garden Court in almost unbroken silence, and the servant who met them at the station had no better news to give them of Mr. Touchett a fact which caused Ralph to congratulate himself afresh on Sir Matthew Hope's having promised to come down in the five o'clock train and spend the night. Mrs. Touchett, he learned on reaching home, had been constantly with the old man, and was with him at that moment, and this fact made Ralph say to himself that, after all, what his mother wanted was just easy occasion. The finer natures were those that shone at the larger times. Isabel went to her own room, noting throughout the house that perceptible hush which precedes a crisis. At the end of an hour, however, she came downstairs in search of her aunt, whom she wished to ask about Mr. Touchett. She went into the library, but Mrs. Touchett was not there, and as the weather, which had been damp and chill, was now altogether spoiled, it was not probable she had gone for her usual walk in the grounds. Isabel was on the point of ringing to send a question to her room, when this purpose quickly yielded to an unexpected sound—the sound of low music proceeding apparently from the saloon. She knew her aunt never touched the piano, and the musician was therefore probably Ralph, who played for his own amusement. That he should have resorted to this recreation at the present time indicated apparently that his anxiety about his father had been relieved so that the girl took her way, almost with restored cheer, toward the source of the harmony. The drawing-room at Garden Court was an apartment of great distances, and as the piano was placed at the end of its furthest remove from the door at which she entered, her arrival was not noticed by the person seated before the instrument. This person was neither Ralph nor his mother. It was a lady, whom Isabel immediately saw to be a stranger to herself, though her back was presented to the door. This back, an ample and well-dressed one, Isabel viewed for some moments with surprise. The lady was, of course, a visitor who had arrived during her absence and who had not been mentioned by either of the servants, one of them her aunt's maid, of whom she had had speech since her return. Isabel had already learned, however, with what treasures of reserve the function of receiving orders may be accompanied, and she was particularly conscious of having been treated with dryness by her aunt's maid through whose hands she had slipped perhaps a little too mistrustfully, and with an effect of plumage but the more lustrous. The advent of a guest was in itself far from disconcerting. She had not yet divested herself of a young faith that each new acquaintance would exert some momentous influence on her life. By the time she had made these reflections she became aware that the lady at the piano played remarkably well. She was playing something of Schubert's. Isabel knew not what, but recognized Schubert, and she touched the piano with a discretion of her own. It showed skill, it showed feeling. Isabel sat down noiselessly on the nearest chair and waited till the end of the piece. When it was finished she felt a strong desire to thank the player, and rose from her seat to do so, while at the same time the stranger turned quickly round, as if but just aware of her presence. That's very beautiful and your playing makes it more beautiful still,' said Isabel, with all the young radiance with which she usually uttered a truthful rapture. "'You don't think I disturbed, Mr. Touchett?" then?' the musician answered as sweetly as this compliment deserved. "'The house is so large, and his room so far away, that I thought I might venture, especially as I played just—just du bout des doigts." "'She's a Frenchwoman,' Isabel said to herself, She says that as if she were French. And this supposition made the visitor more interesting to our speculative heroine. "'I hope my uncle's doing well,' Isabel added. "'I should think that to hear such lovely music as that would really make him feel better.' The lady smiled and discriminated. "'I'm afraid there are moments in life when even Schubert has nothing to say to us. We must admit, however, that they are our worst.' "'I'm not in that state now, then,' said Isabel. "'On the contrary, I should be so glad if you would play something more.' "'If it will give you pleasure. Delighted.' And this obliging person took her place again and struck a few chords, while Isabel sat down nearer the instrument. Suddenly the newcomer stopped with her hands on the keys, half turning and looking over her shoulder. She was forty years old, and not pretty, though her expression charmed. Pardon me, she said, but are you the niece, the young American? I'm my aunt's niece, Isabel replied with simplicity. The lady at the piano sat still a moment longer, casting her air of interest over her shoulder. That's very well. We're compatriots. And then she began to play. Ah, then she's not French, Isabel murmured and as the opposite supposition had made her romantic it might have seemed that this revelation would have marked a drop. But such was not the fact. Rarer even than to be French seemed it to be American on such interesting terms. The lady played in the same manner as before, softly and solemnly, and while she played the shadows deepened in the room. The autumn twilight gathered in, and from her place Isabel could see the rain, which had now begun in earnest, washing the cold-looking lawn and the wind shaking the great trees. At last, when the music had ceased, her companion got up, and coming nearer with a smile before Isabel had time to thank her again, said, "'I'm very glad you've come back. I've heard a great deal about you.' Isabel thought her a very attractive person, but nevertheless spoke with a certain abruptness in reply to this speech. From whom have you heard about me?" The stranger hesitated a single moment, and then, "'From your uncle,' she answered. "'I've been here three days, and the first day he let me come and pay him a visit in his room. Then he talked constantly of you. As you didn't know me, that must have rather bored you. It made me want to know you. All the more that since then—your aunt being so much with Mr. Touchett—I've been quite alone." and have got rather tired of my own society. I've not chosen a good moment for my visit." A servant had come in with lamps and was presently followed by another bearing the tea-tray. On the appearance of this repast Mrs. Touchett had apparently been notified, for she now arrived and addressed herself to the teapot. Her greeting to her niece did not differ materially from her manner of raising the lid of this receptacle in order to glance at the contents, in neither act was it becoming to make a show of avidity. Questioned about her husband, she was unable to say he was better. But the local doctor was with him, and much light was expected from this gentleman's consultation with Sir Matthew Hope. "'I suppose you two ladies have made acquaintance?' she pursued. "'If you haven't, I recommend you to do so. For so long as we continue—Ralph and I—to cluster about Mr. Touchett's bed, you're not likely to have much society but each other.' I know nothing about you but that you are a great musician," Isabel said to the visitor. "'There's a good deal more than that to know,' Mrs. Touchett affirmed in her little dry tone. "'A very little of it, I am sure, will content Miss Archer,' the lady exclaimed with a light laugh. "'I'm an old friend of your aunt's. I've lived much in Florence. I'm Madame Merle.' She made this last announcement as if she were referring to a person of tolerably distinct identity. For Isabel, however, it represented little. She could only continue to feel that Madame Merle had as charming a manner as any she had ever encountered. "'She's not a foreigner, in spite of her name,' said Mrs. Touchett. "'She was born—' "'I always forget where you were born.' "'It's hardly worth while, then, I should tell you.' "'On the contrary,' said Mrs. Touchett, who rarely missed a logical point. "'If I remembered, you're telling me it would be quite superfluous.' Madame Merle glanced at Isabel with a sort of world-wide smile, a thing that overreached frontiers. I was born under the shadow of the National Banner. She's too fond of mystery, said Mrs. Touchett. That's her great fault. Ah! exclaimed Madame Merle. I've great faults, but I don't think that's one of them. It certainly isn't the greatest. I came into the world in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, My father was a high officer in the United States Navy, and had a post—a post of responsibility—in that establishment at the time. I suppose I ought to love the sea, but I hate it. That's why I don't return to America. I love the land. The great thing is to love something." Isabel, as a dispassionate witness, had not been struck with the force of Mrs. Touchett's characterization of her visitor, who had an expressive, communicative, responsive face, by no means of the sort which, to Isabel's mind, suggested a secretive disposition. It was a face that told of an amplitude of nature, and of quick and free motions, and, though it had no regular beauty, was in the highest degree engaging and attaching. Madame Merle was a tall, fair, smooth woman, everything in her person was round and replete, though without those accumulations which suggest heaviness. Her features were thick but in perfect proportion and harmony, and her complexion had a healthy clearness. Her grey eyes were small but full of light, and incapable of stupidity—incapable, according to some people, even of tears. She had a liberal, full-rimmed mouth, which, when she smiled, drew itself upward to the left side in a manner that most people thought very odd, some very affected, and a few very graceful. Isabel inclined to range herself in the last category. Madame Merle had thick fair hair, arranged somehow classically, and as if she were a bust, Isabel judged, a Juno or a Niobe, and large white hands of a perfect shape, a shape so perfect that their possessor, preferring to leave them unadorned, wore no jewelled rings. Isabel had taken her at first, as we have seen, for a Frenchwoman. But extended observation might have ranked her as a German, a German of high degree, perhaps an Austrian, a baroness, a countess, a princess. It would never have been supposed she had come into the world in Brooklyn, though one could doubtless not have carried through any argument that the air of distinction marking her in so eminent a degree was inconsistent with such a birth. It was true that the national banner had floated immediately over her cradle, and the breezy freedom of the stars and stripes might have shed an influence upon the attitude she there took towards life. And yet she had evidently nothing of the fluttered, flapping quality of a morsel of bunting in the wind. Her manner expressed the repose and confidence which comes from a large experience. Experience, however, had not quenched her youth. It had simply made her sympathetic and supple. She was, in a word, a woman of strong impulses kept in admirable order. This commended itself to Isabel as an ideal combination. The girl made these reflections while the three ladies sat at their tea, but that ceremony was interrupted before long by the arrival of a great doctor from London who had been immediately ushered into the drawing-room. Mrs. Touchett took him off to the library for a private talk, and then Madame Merle and Isabel parted to meet again at dinner. The idea of seeing more of this interesting woman did much to mitigate Isabel's sense of the sadness now settling on Garden Court. When she came into the drawing-room before dinner she found the place empty. But in the course of a moment Ralph arrived. His anxiety about his father had been lightened. Sir Matthew Hope's view of his condition was less depressed than his own had been. The doctor recommended that the nurse alone should remain with the old man for the next three or four hours, so that Ralph, his mother, and the great physician himself were free to dine at table. Mrs. Touchett and Sir Matthew appeared. Madame Merle was the last. Before she came Isabel spoke of her to Ralph, who was standing before the fireplace. "'Pray, who is this Madame Merle?' "'The cleverest woman I know—not excepting yourself,' said Ralph. "'I thought she seemed very pleasant.' "'I was sure you'd think her very pleasant.' "'Is that why you invited her?' "'I didn't invite her and when we came back from London I didn't know she was here. No one invited her. She's a friend of my mother's, and just after you and I went to town my mother got a note from her. She had arrived in England. She usually lives abroad, though she has first and last spent a good deal of time here, and asked leave to come down for a few days. She's a woman who can make such proposals with perfect confidence, so she's welcome wherever she goes. And with my mother there could of course be no question of hesitating— She's the one person in the world whom my mother very much admires. If she were not herself, which she, after all, much prefers, she would like to be Madame Merle. It would indeed be a great change. Well, she's very charming, said Isabel, and she plays beautifully. She does everything beautifully. She's complete. Isabel looked at her cousin a moment. You don't like her. On the contrary, I was once in love with her. And she didn't care for you, and that's why you don't like her. How can we have discussed such things? Monsieur Merle was then living. Is he dead now? So she says. Don't you believe her? Yes, because the statement agrees with the probabilities. The husband of Madame Merle would be likely to pass away. Isabel gazed at her cousin again. I don't know what you mean. You mean something that you don't mean— "'What was Monsieur Merle?' "'The husband of Madame.' "'Oh, you're very odious. "'Has she any children?' "'Not the least little child, fortunately.' "'Fortunately?' "'I mean fortunately for the child. "'She'd be sure to spoil it.' Isabel was apparently on the point of assuring her cousin for the third time that he was odious, but the discussion was interrupted by the arrival of the lady who was the topic of it. She came rustling in quickly— apologizing for being late, fastening a bracelet, dressed in dark blue satin, which exposed a white bosom that was ineffectually covered by a curious silver necklace. Ralph offered her his arm with the exaggerated alertness of a man who was no longer a lover. Even if this had still been his condition, however, Ralph had other things to think about. The great doctor spent the night at Garden Court, and returning to London on the morrow, after another consultation with Mr. Touchett's own medical adviser, concurred in Ralph's desire that he should see the patient again on the day following. On the day following Sir Matthew Hope reappeared at Garden Court, and now took a less encouraging view of the old man, who had grown worse in the twenty-four hours. His feebleness was extreme, and to his son, who constantly sat by his bedside, it often seemed that his end must be at hand. The local doctor, a very sagacious man, in whom Ralph had secretly more confidence than in his distinguished colleague, was constantly in attendance, and Sir Matthew Hope came back several times. Mr. Touchett was much of the time unconscious. He slept a great deal. He rarely spoke. Isabel had a great desire to be useful to him, and was allowed to watch with him at hours when his other attendants, of whom Mrs. Touchett was not the least regular, went to take rest. He never seemed to know her and she always said to herself, "'Suppose he should die while I'm sitting here.' An idea which excited her and kept her awake. Once he opened his eyes for a while and fixed them upon her intelligently, but when she went to him, hoping he would recognize her, he closed them and relapsed into stupor. The day after this, however, he revived for a longer time, but on this occasion Ralph only was with him. The old man began to talk, much to his son's satisfaction, who assured him that they should presently have him sitting up. "'No, my boy,' said Mr. Touchett. "'Not unless you bury me in a sitting posture, as some of the ancients—' "'Was it the ancients?' "'Used to do.' "'Ah, Daddy, don't talk about that,' Ralph murmured. "'You mustn't deny that you're getting better.' "'There will be no need of my denying it if you don't say it.' the old man answered. Why should we prevaricate just at the last? We never prevaricated before. I've got to die sometime, and it's better to die when one's sick than when one's well. I'm very sick, as sick as I shall ever be. I hope you don't want to prove that I shall ever be worse than this. That would be too bad. You don't? Well, then, Having made this excellent point, he became quiet, but the next time that Ralph was with him he again addressed himself to conversation. The nurse had gone to her supper, and Ralph was alone in charge, having just relieved Mrs. Touchett, who had been on guard since dinner. The room was lighted only by the flickering fire, which of late had become necessary, and Ralph's tall shadow was projected over wall and ceiling with an outline constantly varying but always grotesque. "'Who's that with me? Is it my son?' the old man asked. "'Yes, it's your son, Daddy.' "'And is there no one else?' "'No one else.' Mr. Touchett said nothing for a while, and then— "'I want to talk a little,' he went on. "'Won't it tire you?' Ralph demurred. "'It won't matter if it does. I shall have a long rest. "'I want to talk about you.' Ralph had drawn nearer to the bed. He sat leaning forward with his hand on his father's. You had better select a brighter topic. You were always bright. I used to be proud of your brightness. I should like so much to think you'd do something. If you leave us, said Ralph, I shall do nothing but miss you. That's just what I don't want. It's what I want to talk about. You must get a new interest. I don't want a new interest, Daddy. I have more old ones than I know what to do with. The old man lay there looking at his son. His face was the face of the dying, but his eyes were the eyes of Daniel Touchett. He seemed to be reckoning over Ralph's interests. Of course, you have your mother, he said at last. You'll take care of her. My mother will always take care of herself, Ralph returned. "'Well,' said his father, "'perhaps as she grows older she'll need a little help. "'I shall not see that. "'She'll outlive me. "'Very likely she will, but that's no reason.' Mr. Touchett let his phrase die away in a helpless but not quite querulous sigh, and remained silent again. "'Don't trouble yourself about us,' said his son. "'My mother and I get on very well together, you know.' "'You get on by always being apart. That's not natural. "'If you leave us, we shall probably see more of each other.' "'Well,' the old man observed with wandering irrelevance, "'it can't be said that my death will make much difference in your mother's life.' "'It will probably make more than you think.' "'Well, she'll have more money,' said Mr. Touchett. "'I've left her a good wife's portion.' just as if she had been a good wife. She has been one, Daddy, according to her own theory. She has never troubled you. Ah, some troubles are pleasant, Mr. Touchett murmured. Those you've given me, for instance. But your mother has been less... Less... what shall I call it? Less out of the way since I've been ill. I presume she knows I've noticed it. I shall certainly tell her so. I'm so glad you mention it. It won't make any difference to her. She doesn't do it to please me. She does it to please. To please. And he lay a while trying to think why she did it. She does it because it suits her. But that's not what I want to talk about, he added. It's about you. You'll be very well off. Yes, said Ralph. I know that. But I hope you've not forgotten the talk we had a year ago, when I told you exactly what money I should need, and begged you to make some good use of the rest. Yes, yes, I remember. I made a new will in a few days. I suppose it was the first time such a thing had happened—a young man trying to get a will made against him." "'It is not against me,' said Ralph. "'It would be against me to have a large property to take care of. It's impossible for a man in my state of health to spend much money, and enough is as good as a feast. Well, you'll have enough, and something over. There'll be more than enough for one. There'll be enough for two. That's too much, said Ralph. Ah, don't say that. The best thing you can do when I'm gone will be to marry. Ralph had foreseen what his father was coming to— and this suggestion was by no means fresh. It had long been Mr. Touchett's most ingenious way of taking the cheerful view of his son's possible duration. Ralph had usually treated it facetiously, but present circumstances proscribed the facetious. He simply fell back in his chair, and returned his father's appealing gaze. "'If I, with a wife who hasn't been very fond of me, have had a very happy life,' said the old man, carrying his ingenuity further still. "'What a life mightn't you have if you should marry a person different from Mrs. Touchett? There are more different from her than there are like her.' Ralph still said nothing, and after a pause his father resumed softly. "'What do you think of your cousin?' At this Ralph started, meeting the question with a strained smile." "'Do I understand you to propose that I should marry Isabel?' "'Well, that's what it comes to in the end. "'Don't you like Isabel?' "'Yes, very much.' And Ralph got up from his chair and wandered over to the fire. He stood before it an instant, and then he stooped and stirred it mechanically. "'I like Isabel very much,' he repeated. "'Well,' said his father, "'I know she likes you.' "'She has told me how much she likes you. "'Did she remark that she would like to marry me? "'No, but she can't have anything against you, "'and she's the most charming young lady I've ever seen, "'and she would be good to you. "'I've thought a great deal about it.' "'So have I,' said Ralph, coming back to the bedside again. "'I don't mind telling you that.' "'You are in love with her, then? "'I should think you would be. "'It's as if she came over on purpose.' No, I'm not in love with her, but I should be, if if certain things were different. Ah, things are always different from what they might be, said the old man. If you wait for them to change, you'll never do anything. I don't know whether you know, he went on, but I suppose there's no harm in my alluding to it at such an hour as this. There was someone wanted to marry Isabel the other day, and she wouldn't have him. I know she refused Warburton. He told me himself. Well, that proves there's a chance for somebody else. Somebody else took his chance the other day in London, and got nothing by it. Was it you? Mr. Touchett? eagerly asked. No, it was an older friend, a poor gentleman who came over from America to see about it. Well, I'm sorry for him, whoever he was, but it only proves what I say, that the way's open to you. If it is, dear father, it's all the greater pity that I am unable to tread it. I haven't many convictions, but I have three or four that I hold strongly. One is that people on the whole had better not marry their cousins. Another is that people in an advanced stage of pulmonary disorder had better not marry at all. The old man raised his weak hand and moved it to and fro before his face. What do you mean by that? You look at things in a way that would make everything wrong. What sort of a cousin is a cousin that you had never seen for more than twenty years of her life? We're all each other's cousins, and if we stopped at that, the human race would die out. It's just the same with your bad lung. You're a great deal better than you used to be. All you want is to lead a natural life. It is a great deal more natural to marry a pretty young lady that you're in love with than it is to remain single on false principles." I'm not in love with Isabel said Ralph. You said just now that you would be if you didn't think it wrong. I want to prove to you that it isn't wrong. It will only tire you, dear Daddy, said Ralph, who marveled at his father's tenacity and at his finding strength to insist. Then where shall we all be? Where shall you be if I don't provide for you? You won't have anything to do with the bank, and you won't have me to take care of. "'You say you've so many interests, but I can't make them out.' Ralph leaned back in his chair with folded arms. His eyes were fixed for some time in meditation. At last, with the air of a man fairly mustering courage, "'I take a great interest in my cousin,' he said, "'but not the sort of interest you desire. "'I shall not live many years, "'but I hope I shall live long enough to see what she does with herself.' She's entirely independent of me. I can exercise very little influence upon her life. But I should like to do something for her. What should you like to do? I should like to put a little wind in her sails. What do you mean by that? I should like to put it into her power to do some of the things she wants. She wants to see the world, for instance. I should like to put money in her purse ah i'm glad you've thought of that said the old man but i've thought of it too i've left her a legacy five thousand pounds that's capital it's very kind of you but i should like to do a little more something of that veiled acuteness with which it had been on daniel touchett's part the habit of a lifetime to listen to a financial proposition still lingered in the face in which the invalid had not obliterated the man of business "'I shall be happy to consider it,' he said softly. "'Isabel's poor, then. My mother tells me that she has but a few hundred dollars a year. I should like to make her rich.' "'What do you mean by rich?' "'I call people rich when they're able to meet the requirements of their imagination. Isabel has a great deal of imagination.' "'So have you, my son.' "'said Mr. Touchett, listening very attentively but a little confusedly. "'You tell me I shall have money enough for two. "'What I want is that you should kindly relieve me of my superfluity "'and make it over to Isabel. "'Divide my inheritance into two equal halves and give her the second. "'To do what she likes with?' "'Absolutely what she likes.' "'And without an equivalent?' "'What equivalent could there be?' "'The one I've already mentioned.' "'Her marrying someone or other? "'It's just to do away with anything of that sort that I make my suggestion. "'If she has an easy income, she'll never have to marry for a support. "'That's what I want cannily to prevent. "'She wishes to be free, and your request will make her free.' "'Well, you seem to have thought it out,' said Mr. Touchett. "'But I don't see why you appeal to me. "'The money will be yours, and you can easily give it to her yourself.' ralph openly stared oh dear father i can't offer isabel money the old man gave a groan don't tell me you're not in love with her do you want me to have the credit of it entirely i should like it simply to be a clause in your will without the slightest reference to me do you want me to make a new will then a few words will do it you can attend to it the next time you feel a little lively "'You must telegraph to Mr. Hillary, then. "'I'll do nothing without my solicitor. "'You shall see Mr. Hillary to-morrow.' "'He'll think we've quarrelled, you and I,' said the old man. "'Very probably. "'I shall like him to think it,' said Ralph, smiling. "'And to carry out the idea I give you notice that I shall be very sharp, "'quite horrid, and strange with you.' "'The humour of this appeared to touch his father, "'who lay a little while taking it in.' I'll do anything you like, Mr. Touchett said at last, but I'm not sure it's right. You say you want to put wind in her sails, but aren't you afraid of putting too much? I should like to see her going before the breeze. Ralph answered. You speak as if it were for your mere amusement, so it is a good deal. Well, I don't think I understand, said Mr. Touchett with a sigh. "'Young men are very different from what I was. "'When I cared for a girl, when I was young, "'I wanted to do more than look at her. "'You've scruples that I shouldn't have had, "'and you've ideas that I shouldn't have had either. "'You say Isabel wants to be free "'and that her being rich will keep her from marrying for money. "'Do you think that she's a girl to do that?' "'By no means. "'But she has less money than she has ever had before.' Her father then gave her everything, because he used to spend his capital. She has nothing but the crumbs of that feast to live on, and she doesn't really know how meagre they are. She has yet to learn it. My mother has told me all about it. Isabel will learn it when she's really thrown upon the world, and it would be very painful to me to think of her coming to the consciousness of a lot of wants that she should be unable to satisfy. I've left her five thousand pounds. She can satisfy a good many wants with that.' She can, indeed. But she would probably spend it in two or three years. You think she'd be extravagant, then? Most certainly, said Ralph, smiling serenely. Poor Mr. Touchett's acuteness was rapidly giving place to pure confusion. It would merely be a question of time, then, her spending the larger sum. No, though at first I think she'd plunge into that pretty freely. She'd probably make over a part of it to each of her sisters— But after that she'd come to her senses, remember she still has a lifetime before her, and live within her means. "'Well, you have worked it out,' said the old man helplessly. "'You do take an interest in her, certainly. "'You can't consistently say I go too far. "'You wished me to go further.' "'Well, I don't know,' Mr. Touchett answered. "'I don't think I enter into your spirit. "'It seems to me immoral.' Immoral, dear daddy. Well, I don't know that it's right to make everything so easy for a person. It surely depends upon the person. When the person's good, your making things easy is all to the credit of virtue. To facilitate the execution of good impulses, what can be a nobler act? This was a little difficult to follow, and Mr. Touchett considered it for a while. At last he said, Isabel's a sweet young thing. "'But do you think she's so good as that?' "'She's as good as her best opportunities,' Ralph returned. "'Well,' Mr. Touchett declared, "'she ought to get a great many opportunities for sixty thousand pounds.' "'I've no doubt she will.' "'Of course I'll do what you want,' said the old man. "'I only want to understand it a little.' "'Well, dear Daddy, don't you understand it now?' "'His son caressingly asked.' If you don't, we won't take any more trouble about it. We'll leave it alone. Mr. Touchett lay a long time still. Ralph supposed he had given up the attempt to follow. But at last, quite lucidly, he began again. Tell me this first. Doesn't it occur to you that a young lady with sixty thousand pounds may fall a victim to the fortune hunters? She'll hardly fall a victim to more than one. Well, one's too many. Decidedly, that's a risk, and it has entered into my calculation. I think it's appreciable, but I think it's small, and I'm prepared to take it. Poor Mr. Touchett's acuteness had passed into perplexity, and his perplexity now passed into admiration. Well, you have gone into it, he repeated, but I don't see what good you're to get out of it. Ralph leaned over his father's pillows and gently smoothed them. He was aware their talk had been unduly prolonged. "'I shall get just the good I said a few moments ago. I wished you to put into Isabel's reach—that of having met the requirements of my imagination. But it's scandalous, the way I've taken advantage of you.'" End of Chapter 18 Chapter Nineteen of the Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. As Mrs. Touchett had foretold, Isabel and Madame Merle were thrown much together during the illness of their host, so that if they had not become intimate, it would almost have been a breach of good manners. Their manners were of the best, but in addition to this, they happened to please each other. It is perhaps too much to say that they swore an eternal friendship, but tacitly, at least, they called the future to witness. Isabel did so with a perfectly good conscience, though she would have hesitated to admit that she was intimate with her new friend in the high sense she privately attached to this term. She often wondered indeed if she had ever been, or could ever be, intimate with any one. She had an ideal of friendship as well as of several other sentiments, which had failed to seem to her, in this case, It had not seemed to her in other cases—that the actual completely expressed. But she often reminded herself that there were essential reasons why one's ideal could never become concrete. It was a thing to believe in, not to see—a matter of faith, not of experience. Experience, however, might supply us with very creditable imitations of it, and the part of wisdom was to make the best of these. Certainly, on the whole, Isabel had never encountered a more agreeable and interesting figure than Madame Merle. She had never met a person having less of that fault which is the principal obstacle to a friendship—the air of reproducing the more tiresome, the stale, the too familiar parts of one's own character. The gates of the girl's confidence were opened wider than they had ever been. She said things to this amiable auditress that she had not yet said to any one. Sometimes she took alarm at her candor it was as if she had given to a comparative stranger the key to her cabinet of jewels. These spiritual gems were the only ones of any magnitude that Isabel possessed, but there was all the greater reason for their being carefully guarded. Afterwards, however, she always remembered that one should never regret a generous error, and that if Madame Merle had not the merit she attributed to her, so much the worse for Madame Merle. There was no doubt she had great merits. She was charming sympathetic, intelligent, cultivated. More than this, for it had not been Isabel's ill-fortune to go through life without meeting in her own sex several persons of whom no less could fairly be said, she was rare, superior, and pre-eminent. There are many amiable people in the world, and Madame Merle was far from being vulgarly good-natured and restlessly witty. She knew how to think, an accomplishment rare in women and she had thought to very good purpose. Of course, too, she knew how to feel—Isabel couldn't have spent a week with her without being sure of that. This was indeed Madame Merle's great talent, her most perfect gift. Life had told upon her, she had felt it strongly, and it was part of the satisfaction to be taken in her society that when the girl talked of what she was pleased to call serious matters, this lady understood her so easily and quickly emotion it is true had become with her rather historic she made no secret of the fact that the fount of passion thanks to having been rather violently tapped at one period didn't flow quite so freely as of yore she proposed moreover as well as expected to cease feeling she freely admitted that of old she had been a little mad and now she pretended to be perfectly sane i judge more than i used to she said to isabel but it seems to me one has earned the right. One can't judge till one's forty. Before that we're too eager, too hard, too cruel, and in addition much too ignorant. I'm sorry for you. It'll be a long time before you're forty. But every gain's a loss of some kind. I often think that after forty one can't really feel. The freshness, the quickness, have certainly gone. You'll keep them longer than most people." It will be a great satisfaction to me to see you some years hence. I want to see what life makes of you. One thing's certain, it can't spoil you. It may pull you about horribly, but I defy it to break you up." Isabel received this assurance as a young soldier, still panting from a slight skirmish in which he has come off with honour, might receive a pat on the shoulder from his colonel. Like such a recognition of merit, It seemed to come with authority. How could the lightest word do less on the part of a person who was prepared to say, of almost everything Isabel told her—'Oh, I've been in that, my dear. It passes, like everything else.' On many of her interlocutors Madame Merle might have produced an irritating effect. It was disconcertingly difficult to surprise her. But Isabel, though by no means incapable of desiring to be effective, had not at present this impulse. She was too sincere too interested in her judicious companion and then moreover madame merle never said such things in the tone of triumph or of boastfulness they dropped from her like cold confessions a period of bad weather had settled upon garden court the days grew shorter and there was an end to the pretty tea-parties on the lawn but our young woman had long indoor conversations with her fellow visitor and in spite of the rain the two ladies often sallied forth for a walk, equipped with the defensive apparatus which the English climate and the English genius have between them brought to such perfection. Madame Merle liked almost everything, including the English rain. "'There's always a little of it, and never too much at once,' she said, "'and it never wets you, and it always smells good.' She declared that in England the pleasures of smell were great— that in this inimitable island there was a certain mixture of fog and beer and soot which however odd it might sound was the national aroma and was most agreeable to the nostril and she used to lift the sleeve of her british overcoat and bury her nose in it inhaling the fine clear scent of the wool poor ralph touchett as soon as the autumn had begun to define itself became almost a prisoner in bad weather he was unable to step out of the house and he used sometimes to stand at one of the windows with his hands in his pockets, and from a countenance half rueful, half critical, watch Isabel and Madame Merle as they walked down the avenue under a pair of umbrellas. The roads about Garden Court were so firm, even in the worst weather, that the two ladies always came back with a healthy glow in their cheeks, looking at the soles of their neat stout boots, and declaring that their walk had done them inexpressible good. Before luncheon always Madame Merle was engaged, Isabel admired and envied her rigid possession of her mourning. Our heroine had always passed for a person of resources, and had taken a certain pride in being one. But she wandered, as by the wrong side of the wall of a private garden, round the enclosed talents, accomplishments, aptitudes of Madame Merle. She found herself desiring to emulate them, and in twenty such ways this lady presented herself as a model. "'I should like awfully to be so,' Isabel secretly exclaimed, more than once, as one after another of her friend's fine aspects caught the light, and before long she knew that she had learned a lesson from a high authority. It took no great time indeed for her to feel herself, as the phrase is, under an influence. "'What's the harm?' she wondered. "'So long as it's a good one. The more one's under a good influence, the better.' The only thing is to see our steps as we take them, to understand them as we go. That, no doubt, I shall always do. I needn't be afraid of becoming too pliable. Isn't it my fault that I'm not pliable enough? It is said that imitation is the sincerest flattery, and if Isabel was sometimes moved to gape at her friend aspiringly and despairingly, it was not so much because she desired herself to shine as because she wished to hold up the lamp for Madame Merle. She liked her extremely, but was even more dazzled than attracted. She sometimes asked herself what Henrietta Stackpole would say to her thinking so much of this perverted product of their common soil, and had a conviction that it would be severely judged. Henrietta would not at all subscribe to Madame Merle. For reasons she could not have defined, this truth came home to the girl. On the other hand, she was equally sure that, should the occasion offer, her new friend would strike off some happy view of her old. Madame Merle was too humorous, too observant, not to do justice to Henrietta, and on becoming acquainted with her, would probably give the measure of a tact which Miss Stackpole couldn't hope to emulate. She appeared to have in her experience a touchstone for everything, and somewhere in the capacious pocket of her genial memory she would find the key to Henrietta's value. "'That's the great thing,' Isabel solemnly pondered. "'That's the supreme good fortune, to be in a better position for appreciating people than they are for appreciating you and she added that such when one considered it was simply the essence of the aristocratic situation in this light if in none other one should aim at the aristocratic situation i may not count over all the links in the chain which led isabel to think of madame merle's situation as aristocratic A view of it never expressed in any reference made to it by that lady herself she had known great things and great people but she had never played a great part she was one of the small ones of the earth she had not been born to honours she knew the world too well to nourish fatuous illusions on the article of her own place in it she had encountered many of the fortunate few and was perfectly aware of those points at which their fortunes diverged from hers but if by her informed measure she was no figure for a high scene, she had yet to Isabel's imagination a sort of greatness. To be so cultivated and civilized, so wise and so easy, and still make so light of it, that was really to be a great lady, especially when one so carried and presented one's self. It was as if somehow she had all society under contribution, and all the arts and graces it practised or was the effect rather that of charming uses found for her, even from a distance—subtle service rendered by her to a clamorous world wherever she might be? After breakfast she wrote a succession of letters, as those arriving for her appeared innumerable. Her correspondence was a source of surprise to Isabel, when they sometimes walked together to the village post-office to deposit Madame Merle's offering to the mail. She knew more people, as she told Isabel, than she knew what to do with and something was always turning up to be written about. Of painting she was devotedly fond, and made no more of brushing in a sketch than of pulling off her gloves. At Garden Court she was perpetually taking advantage of an hour's sunshine to go out with a camp-stool and a box of water colours. That she was a brave musician we have already perceived, and it was evidence of the fact that when she seated herself at the piano, as she always did in the evening, her listeners resigned themselves without a murmur to losing the grace of her talk. Isabel, since she had known her, felt ashamed of her own facility, which she now looked upon as basely inferior, and indeed, though she had been thought rather a prodigy at home, the loss to society when, in taking her place upon the music-stool, she turned her back to the room, was usually deemed greater than the gain. When Madame Merle was neither writing nor painting nor touching the piano, she was usually employed upon wonderful tasks of rich embroidery—cushions, curtains, decorations for the chimney-piece, an art in which her bold, free invention was as noted as the agility of her needle. She was never idle, for when engaged in none of the ways I have mentioned she was either reading she appeared to Isabel to read everything important, or walking out, or playing patience with the cards, or talking with her fellow inmates. And with all this she had always the social quality, was never rudely absent, yet never too seated she laid down her pastimes as easily as she took them up. She worked and talked at the same time, and appeared to impute scant worth to anything she did. She gave away her sketches and tapestries, she rose from the piano or remained there, according to the convenience of her auditors, which she always unerringly divined. She was, in short, the most comfortable, profitable, amenable person to live with. If, for Isabel, she had a fault, it was that she was not natural." by which the girl meant—not that she was either affected or pretentious, since from these vulgar vices no woman could have been more exempt—but that her nature had been too much overlaid by custom, and her angles too much rubbed away. She had become too flexible, too useful, was too ripe and too final. She was, in a word, too perfectly the social animal that man and woman are supposed to have been intended to be, and she had rid herself of every remnant of that tonic wildness which we may assume to have belonged even to the most amiable persons in the ages before country-house life was the fashion. Isabel found it difficult to think of her in any detachment or privacy. She existed only in her relations, direct or indirect, with her fellow-mortals. One might wonder what commerce she could possibly hold with her own spirit. One always ended, however, by feeling that a charming surface doesn't necessarily prove one superficial. This was an illusion in which, in one's youth, one had but just escaped being nourished. Madame Merle was not superficial. Not she. She was deep, and her nature spoke none the less in her behaviour because it spoke a conventional tongue. "'What's language at all but a convention?' said Isabel. "'She has the good taste not to pretend, like some people I've met, to express herself by original signs.' "'I'm afraid you've suffered much,' She once found occasion to say to her friend in response to some allusion that appeared to reach far. "'What makes you think that?' Madame Merle asked, with the amused smile of a person seated at a game of guesses. "'I hope I haven't too much the droop of the misunderstood.' "'No, but you sometimes say things that I think people who have always been happy wouldn't have found out.' "'I haven't always been happy,' said Madame Merle, smiling still, but with a mock gravity, as if she were telling a child a secret. Such a wonderful thing! But Isabel rose to the irony. A great many people give me the impression of never having for a moment felt anything. It's very true. There are many more iron pots, certainly, than porcelain. But you may depend upon it that every one bears some mark. Even the hardest iron pots have a little bruise, a little hole somewhere. I flatter myself that I'm rather stout. But if I must tell you the truth, I've been shockingly chipped and cracked. I do very well for service yet, because I've been cleverly mended, and I try to remain in the cupboard—the quiet, dusky cupboard where there's an odor of stale spices—as much as I can. But, when I've to come out and into a strong light, then, my dear, I'm a horror. I know not whether it was on this occasion or on some other— that the conversation had taken the turn I have just indicated she said to Isabel that she would some day a tale unfold. Isabel assured her that she should delight to listen to one, and reminded her more than once of this engagement. Madame Merle, however, begged repeatedly for a respite, and at last frankly told her young companion that they must wait till they knew each other better. This would be sure to happen, a long friendship so visibly lay before them. Isabel assented but at the same time inquired if she mightn't be trusted, if she appeared capable of a betrayal of confidence. "'It's not that I'm afraid of your repeating what I say,' her fellow visitor answered. "'I'm afraid, on the contrary, of your taking it too much to yourself. You judge me too harshly. You're of the cruel age.' She preferred for the present to talk to Isabel of Isabel, and exhibited the greatest interest in our heroine's history, sentiments, opinions, prospects. She made her chatter and listened to her chatter with infinite good nature. This flattered and quickened the girl, who was struck with all the distinguished people her friend had known, and with her having lived, as Mrs. Touchett said, in the best company in Europe. Isabel thought the better of herself for enjoying the favour of a person who had so large a field of comparison and it was perhaps partly to gratify the sense of profiting, by comparison, that she so often appealed to these stores of reminiscence. Madame Merle had been a dweller in many lands, and had social ties in a dozen different countries. "'I don't pretend to be educated,' she would say, "'but I think I know my Europe.' And she spoke one day of going to Sweden to stay with an old friend, and another of proceeding to Malta to follow up a new acquaintance." with England, where she had often dwelt, she was thoroughly familiar. And for Isabel's benefit threw a great deal of light upon the customs of the country and the character of the people, who, after all, as she was fond of saying, were the most convenient in the world to live with. "'You mustn't think it strange, her remaining here at such a time as this, when Mr. Touchett's passing away,' that gentleman's wife remarked to her niece. "'She is incapable of a mistake. She's the most tactful woman I know.' It's a favor to me that she stays. She's putting off a lot of visits at great houses," said Mrs. Touchett, who never forgot that when she herself was in England her social value sank two or three degrees in the scale. She has her pick of places. She's not in want of a shelter. But I've asked her to put in this time because I wish you to know her. I think it will be a good thing for you. Serena Merle hasn't a fault. If I didn't already like her very much that description might alarm me. "'Isabel returned. "'She's never the least little bit off. "'I've brought you out here and I wish to do the best for you. "'Your sister Lily told me she hoped I would give you plenty of opportunities. "'I give you one in putting you in relation with Madame Merle. "'She's one of the most brilliant women in Europe.' "'I like her better than I like your description of her,' "'Isabel persisted in saying. "'Do you flatter yourself that you'll ever feel her open to criticism? "'I hope you'll let me know when you do.' "'That will be cruel. "'To you.' said Isabel. You needn't mind me. You won't discover a fault in her. Perhaps not, but I dare say I shan't miss it. She knows absolutely everything on earth there is to know, said Mrs. Touchett. Isabel, after this, observed to their companion that she hoped she knew Mrs. Touchett considered she hadn't a speck on her perfection. On which— I'm obliged to you, Madame Merle replied— but I'm afraid your aunt imagines, or at least alludes to, no aberrations that the clock-face doesn't register." "'So that you mean you've a wild side that's unknown to her?' "'Ah, no. I fear my darkest sides are my tamest. I mean that having no faults for your aunt means that one's never late for dinner—that is, for her dinner. I was not late, by the way, the other day when you came back from London. The clock was just at eight when I came into the drawing-room. It was the rest of you that were before the time. It means that one answers a letter the day one gets it, and that when one comes to stay with her one doesn't bring too much luggage, and is careful not to be taken ill. For Mrs. Touchett those things constitute virtue. It's a blessing to be able to reduce it to its elements." Madame Merle's own conversation, it will be perceived, was enriched with bold, free touches of criticism, which, even when they had a restrictive effect, Never struck Isabel as ill-natured. It couldn't occur to the girl, for instance, that Mrs. Touchett's accomplished guest was abusing her, and this for very good reasons, in the first place, Isabel rose eagerly to the sense of her shades in the second, Madame Merle implied that there was a great deal more to say, and it was clear in the third that for a person to speak to one without ceremony of one's near relations was an agreeable sign of that person's intimacy with one's self. These signs of deep communion multiplied as the days elapsed, and there was none of which Isabel was more sensible than of her companion's preference for making Miss Archer herself a topic. Though she referred frequently to the incidents of her own career, she never lingered upon them. She was as little of a gross egotist as she was of a flat gossip. "'I'm old and stale and faded,' she said more than once. "'I'm of no more interest than last week's newspaper.' you're young and fresh and of today you've the great thing you've actuality i once had it we all have it for an hour you however will have it for longer let us talk about you then you can say nothing i shall not care to hear it's a sign that i'm growing old that i like to talk with younger people i think it's a very pretty compensation if we can't have youth within us we can have it outside and I really think we see it and feel it better that way. Of course we must be in sympathy with it. That I shall always be. I don't know that I shall ever be ill-natured with old people. I hope not. There are certainly some old people I adore. But I shall never be anything but abject with the young. They touch me and appeal to me too much. I give you carte blanche, then. You can even be impertinent if you like i shall let it pass and horribly spoil you i speak as if i were a hundred years old you say well i am if you please i was born before the french revolution ah my dear je viens de loin i belong to the old old world but it's not of that i want to talk i want to talk about the new you must tell me more about america you never tell me enough Here I've been since I was brought here as a helpless child, and it's ridiculous, or rather it's scandalous how little I know about that splendid, dreadful, funny country, surely the greatest and drollest of them all. There are a great many of us like that in these parts, and I must say I think we're a wretched set of people. You should live in your own land, whatever it may be, you have your natural place there. If we're not good Americans, we're certainly poor Europeans. We've no natural place here." We're mere parasites crawling over the surface. We haven't our feet in the soil. At least one can know it and not have illusions. A woman perhaps can get on. A woman, it seems to me, has no natural place anywhere. Wherever she finds herself, she has to remain on the surface and more or less to crawl. You protest, my dear? You're horrified? You declare you'll never crawl? It's very true that I don't see you crawling. "'You stand more upright than a good many poor creatures.' "'Very good. On the whole, I don't think you'll crawl. "'But the men, the Americans—' "'Je vous demande un peu. What do they make of it over here? "'I don't envy them trying to arrange themselves. "'Look at poor Ralph Touchett. What sort of a figure do you call that? "'Fortunately, he has a consumption. "'I say fortunately, because it gives him something to do.' His consumption's his carrière—it's a kind of position. You can say, Oh, Mr. Touchett, he takes care of his lungs, he knows a great deal about climates. But without that, who would he be? What would he represent? Mr. Ralph Touchett, an American who lives in Europe. That signifies absolutely nothing. It's impossible anything should signify less. He's very cultivated, they say. He has a very pretty collection of old snuff-boxes the collection is all that's wanted to make it pitiful i'm tired of the sound of the word i think it's grotesque with the poor old father it's different he has his identity and it's rather a massive one he represents a great financial house and that in our days is as good as anything else for an american at any rate that will do very well but i persist in thinking your cousin very lucky to have a chronic malady so long as he doesn't die of it it's much better than the snuff-boxes. If he weren't ill, you say, he'd do something? He'd take his father's place in the house. My poor child, I doubt it. I don't think he's at all fond of the house. However you know him better than I, though I used to know him rather well, and he may have the benefit of the doubt. The worst case, I think, is a friend of mine, a countryman of ours, who lives in Italy, where he also was brought before he knew better and who is one of the most delightful men I know. Some day you must know him. I'll bring you together, and then you'll see what I mean. He's Gilbert Osmond. He lives in Italy. That's all one can say about him or make of him. He's exceedingly clever, a man made to be distinguished, but, as I tell you, you exhaust the description when you say he's Mr. Osmond who lives to Bethemont in Italy no career, no name, no position, no fortune, no past, no future, no anything. Oh, yes, he paints, if you please. Paints in watercolours, like me, only better than I. His painting's pretty bad. On the whole, I'm rather glad of that. Fortunately, he's very indolent, so indolent that it amounts to a sort of position. He can say, Oh, I do nothing, I'm too deadly lazy. You can do nothing today unless you get up at five o'clock in the morning. In that way he becomes a sort of exception. You feel he might do something if he'd only rise early. He never speaks of his painting to people at large. He's too clever for that. But he has a little girl, a dear little girl. He does speak of her. He's devoted to her, and if it were a career to be an excellent father, he'd be very distinguished. But I'm afraid that's no better than the snuff-boxes perhaps not even so good tell me what they do in america pursued madame merle who it must be observed parenthetically did not deliver herself all at once of these reflections which are presented in a cluster for the convenience of the reader she talked of florence where mr osmond lived and where mrs touchett occupied a medieval palace she talked of rome where she herself had a little pied-à-terre with some rather good old damask She talked of places, of people, and even, as the phrase is, of subjects, and from time to time she talked of their kind old host, and of the prospect of his recovery. From the first she had thought this prospect small, and Isabel had been struck with the positive, discriminating, competent way in which she took the measure of his remainder of life. One evening she announced definitively that he wouldn't live. Sir Matthew Hope told me so plainly as was proper she said, standing there near the fire before dinner. "'He makes himself very agreeable, the great doctor. "'I don't mean his saying that has anything to do with it. "'But he says such things with great tact. "'I had told him I felt ill at my ease, staying here at such a time. "'It seemed to me so indiscreet. "'It wasn't as if I could nurse.' "'You must remain. "'You must remain,' he answered. "'Your office will come later.' "'Wasn't that a very delicate way of saying both that poor Mr. Touchett would go "'and that I might be of some use as a consoler? "'In fact, however, I shall not be of the slightest use. "'Your aunt will console herself. "'She, and she alone, knows just how much consolation she'll require. "'It would be a very delicate matter for another person to undertake to administer the dose. "'With your cousin it will be different. "'He'll miss his father immensely. "'But I should never presume to condole with Mr. Ralph.' We're not on those terms. Madame Merle had alluded more than once to some undefined incongruity in her relations with Ralph Touchett, so Isabel took this occasion of asking her if they were not good friends. Perfectly. But he doesn't like me. What have you done to him? Nothing whatever. But one has no need of a reason for that. For not liking you? I think one has need of a very good reason. You're very kind— "'Be sure you have one ready for the day you begin.' "'Begin to dislike you? I shall never begin.' "'I hope not, because if you do you'll never end. "'That's the way with your cousin. He doesn't get over it. "'It's an antipathy of nature, if I can call it that, when it's all on his side. "'I've nothing whatever against him, and don't bear him the least little grudge for not doing me justice. "'Justice is all I want.' However, one feels that he's a gentleman and would never say anything underhand about one. Cart sur table, Madame Merle subjoined in a moment. I'm not afraid of him. I hope not, indeed," said Isabel, who added something about his being the kindest creature living. She remembered, however, that on her first asking him about Madame Merle he had answered her in a manner which this lady might have thought injurious, without being explicit. There was something between them, Isabel said to herself. But she said nothing more than this. If it were something of importance, it should inspire respect. If it were not, it was not worth her curiosity. With all her love of knowledge, she had a natural shrinking from raising curtains and looking into unlighted corners. The love of knowledge coexisted in her mind with the finest capacity for ignorance. But Madame Merle sometimes said things that startled her made her raise her clear eyebrows at the time and think of the words afterwards. "'I'd give a great deal to be your age again.' She broke out once with a bitterness which, though diluted in her customary amplitude of ease, was imperfectly disguised by it. "'If I could only begin again. If I could have my life before me.' "'Your life's before you yet?' Isabel answered gently, for she was vaguely awestruck no the best part's gone and gone for nothing surely not for nothing said isabel why not what have i got neither husband nor child nor fortune nor position nor the traces of a beauty that i never had you have so many friends dear lady i'm not so sure cried madame merle oh you're wrong you have memories graces talents Madame Merle interrupted her. What have my talents brought me? Nothing but the need of using them still, to get through the hours, the years, to cheat myself with some pretense of movement, of unconsciousness. As for my graces and memories, the less said about them the better. You'll be my friend till you find a better use for your friendship. It will be for you to see that I don't, then, said Isabel. Yes. I would make an effort to keep you." And her companion looked at her gravely. "'When I say I should like to be your age, I mean with your qualities—frank, generous, sincere, like you. In that case I should have made something better of my life. What should you have liked to do that you've not done?' Madame Merle took a sheet of music. She was seated at the piano, and had abruptly wheeled about on the stool when she first spoke and mechanically turned the leaves. I'm very ambitious, she at last replied. And your ambitions have not been satisfied? They must have been great. They were great. I should make myself ridiculous by talking of them. Isabel wondered what they could have been, whether Madame Merle had aspired to wear a crown. I don't know what your idea of success may be, but you seem to me to have been successful, To me, indeed, you're a vivid image of success." Madame Merle tossed away the music with a smile. What's your idea of success? You evidently think it must be a very tame one. It's to see some dream of one's youth come true. Ah, Madame Merle exclaimed, that I've never seen. But my dreams were so great, so preposterous. Heaven forgive me, I'm dreaming now and she turned back to the piano and began grandly to play. On the morrow she said to Isabel that her definition of success had been very pretty, yet frightfully sad. Measured in that way, who had ever succeeded? The dreams of one's youth—why, they were enchanting, they were divine! Who had ever seen such things come to pass? "'I myself—a few of them,' Isabel ventured to answer. Already. They must have been dreams of yesterday.' "'I began to dream very young,' Isabel smiled. "'Ah, if you mean the aspirations of your childhood—that of having a pink sash and a doll that could close her eyes.' "'No, I don't mean that.' "'Or a young man with a fine moustache going down on his knees to you?' "'No, nor that either,' Isabel declared with still more emphasis. Madame Merle appeared to note this eagerness. "'I suspect that's what you do mean. We've all had the young man with the moustache. He's the inevitable young man. He doesn't count.' Isabel was silent a little, but then spoke with extreme and characteristic inconsequence. "'Why shouldn't he count? There are young men and young men.' "'And yours was a paragon. Is that what you mean?' asked her friend with a laugh. If you've had the identical young man you dreamed of, then that was success, and I congratulate you with all my heart. Only in that case, why didn't you fly with him to his castle in the Apennines?" He has no castle in the Apennines. What has he? An ugly brick house in Fortieth Street? Don't tell me that. I refuse to recognize that as an ideal. I don't care anything about his house," said Isabel. That's very crude of you. When you've lived as long as I you'll see that every human being has his shell, and that you must take the shell into account. By the shell I mean the whole envelope of circumstances. There's no such thing as an isolated man or woman. We're each of us made up of some cluster of appurtenances. What shall we call our self? Where does it begin? Where does it end? It overflows into everything that belongs to us and that it flows back again. I know a large part of myself is in the clothes I choose to wear. I've a great respect for things. One's self, for other people, is one's expression of one's self. And one's house, one's furniture, one's garments, the books one reads, the company one keeps—these things are all expressive." This was very metaphysical not more so, however, than several observations Madame Merle had already made. Isabel was fond of metaphysics, but was unable to accompany her friend into this bold analysis of the human personality. "'I don't agree with you. I think just the other way. I don't know whether I succeed in expressing myself, but I know that nothing else expresses me. Nothing that belongs to me is any measure of me. Everything's on the contrary a limit, a barrier.' and a perfectly arbitrary one. Certainly the clothes, which, as you say, I choose to wear, don't express me, and heaven forbid they should. You dress very well," Madame Merle lightly interposed. Possibly, but I don't care to be judged by that. My clothes may express the dressmaker, but they don't express me. To begin with, it's not my own choice that I wear them. They're imposed upon me by society should you prefer to go without them madame merle inquired in a tone which virtually terminated the discussion i am bound to confess though it may cast some discredit on the sketch i have given of the youthful loyalty practised by our heroine toward this accomplished woman that isabel had said nothing whatever to her about lord warburton and had been equally reticent on the subject of caspar goodwood she had not however concealed the fact that she had had opportunities of marrying and had even let her friend know of how advantageous a kind they had been. Lord Warburton had left Lockley and was gone to Scotland, taking his sisters with him, and though he had written to Ralph more than once to ask about Mr. Touchett's health, the girl was not liable to the embarrassment of such enquiries, as, had he still been in the neighbourhood, he would probably have felt bound to make in person. He had excellent ways, but she felt sure that if he come to Garden Court he would have seen Madame Merle and that if he had seen her he would have liked her, and betrayed to her that he was in love with her young friend. It so happened that during this lady's previous visit to Garden Court, each of them much shorter than the present, he had either not been at Lockley or had not called at Mr. Touchett's. Therefore, though she knew him by name as a great man of that county, she had no cause to suspect him as a suitor of Mrs. Touchett's freshly imported niece. "'You've plenty of time.' She had said to Isabel in return for the mutilated confidences which our young woman made her, and which didn't pretend to be perfect, though we have seen that at moments the girl had compunctions at having said so much. I'm glad you've done nothing yet—that you have it still to do. It's a very good thing for a girl to have refused a few good offers—so long, of course, as they are not the best she's likely to have. Pardon me if my tone seems horribly corrupt. One must take the worldly view sometimes. Only don't keep on refusing for the sake of refusing. It's a pleasant exercise of power, but accepting's, after all, an exercise of power as well. There's always the danger of refusing once too often. It was not the one I fell into. I didn't refuse often enough. You're an exquisite creature, and I should like to see you married to a prime minister. But strictly speaking, you know, you're not what is technically called a partie. You're extremely good-looking and extremely clever— In yourself you're quite exceptional. You appear to have the vaguest ideas about your earthly possessions, but from what I can make out you're not embarrassed with an income. I wish you had a little money." I wish I had, said Isabel, simply, apparently forgetting for the moment that her poverty had been a venial fault for two gallant gentlemen. In spite of Sir Matthew Hope's benevolent recommendation, Madame Merle did not remain to the end, as the issue of poor Mr. Touchett's malady had now come frankly to be designated. She was under pledges to other people, which had at last to be redeemed, and she left Garden Court with the understanding that she should in any event see Mrs. Touchett there again, or else in town, before quitting England. Her parting with Isabel was even more like the beginning of a friendship than their meeting had been. "'I'm going to six places in succession, but I shall see no one I shall like as well as you.' They'll all be old friends, however. One doesn't make new friends at my age. I've made a great exception for you. You must remember that and think as well of me as possible. You must reward me by believing in me." By way of answer, Isabel kissed her. And, though some women kiss with facility, there are kisses and kisses, and this embrace was satisfactory to Madame Merle. Our young lady after this was much alone. She saw her aunt and cousin only at meals, and discovered that of the hours during which Mrs. Touchett was invisible only a minor portion was now devoted to nursing her husband. She spent the rest in her own apartments, to which access was not allowed even to her niece, apparently occupied there with mysterious and inscrutable exercises. At table she was grave and silent, but her solemnity was not an attitude. Isabel could see it was a conviction. She wondered if her aunt repented of having taken her own way so much, but there was no visible evidence of this—no tears, no sighs, no exaggeration of zeal always to its own sense adequate. Mrs. Touchett seemed simply to feel the need of thinking things over and summing them up. She had a little moral account-book, with columns unerringly ruled and a sharp steel clasp, which she kept with exemplary neatness uttered reflection had, with her, ever at any rate, a practical ring. "'If I had foreseen this, I'd not have proposed your coming abroad now,' she said to Isabel, after Madame Merle had left the house. "'I'd have waited and sent for you next year.' "'So that perhaps I should never have known my uncle? It's a great happiness to me to have come now.' "'That's very well. But it was not that you might know your uncle that I brought you to Europe.' A perfectly veracious speech— but as Isabel thought, not as perfectly timed. She had leisure to think of this and other matters. She took a solitary walk every day, and spent vague hours in turning over books in the library. Among the subjects that engaged her attention were the adventures of her friend Miss Stackpole, with whom she was in regular correspondence. Isabel liked her friend's private epistolary style better than her public that is she felt her public letters would have been excellent if they had not been printed henrietta's career however was not so successful as might have been wished even in the interest of her private felicity that view of the inner life of great britain which she was so eager to take appeared to dance before her like an ignis fatuous the invitation from lady pencil for mysterious reasons had never arrived and poor mr bantling himself with all his friendly ingenuity had been unable to explain so grave a dereliction on the part of a missive that had obviously been sent. He had evidently taken Henrietta's affairs much to heart, and believed that he owed her a set-off to this illusory visit to Bedfordshire. "'He says he should think I would go to the Continent,' Henrietta wrote, "'and as he thinks of going there himself, I suppose his advice is sincere. He wants to know why I don't take a view of French life, and it's a fact that I want very much to see the New Republic.' mr bantling doesn't care much about the republic but he thinks of going over to paris anyway i must say he's quite as attentive as i could wish and at least i shall have seen one polite englishman i keep telling mr bantling that he ought to have been an american and you should see how that pleases him whenever i say so he breaks out with the same exclamation ah but really come now a few days later she wrote that she had decided to go to paris at the end of the week and that mr bantling had promised to see her off perhaps even would go so far as Dover with her. She would wait in Paris till Isabel should arrive, Henrietta added, speaking quite as if Isabel were to start on her continental journey alone and making no allusion to Mrs. Touchett. Bearing in mind his interest in their late companion, our heroine communicated several passages from this correspondence to Ralph, who followed with an emotion akin to suspense the career of the representative of the interviewer. "'It seems to me she's doing very well,' he said." going over to Paris with an ex-lancer. If she wants something to write about, she has only to describe that episode. It's not conventional, certainly, Isabel answered. But if you mean that, as far as Henrietta is concerned, it's not perfectly innocent, you're very much mistaken. You'll never understand Henrietta. Pardon me, I understand her perfectly. I didn't at all at first, but now I've the point of view. I'm afraid, however, that Bantling hasn't, he may have some surprises. Oh, I understand Henrietta as well as if I had made her. Isabel was by no means sure of this, but she abstained from expressing further doubt, for she was disposed in these days to extend a great charity to her cousin. One afternoon less than a week after Madame Merle's departure she was seated in the library with a volume to which her attention was not fastened. She had placed herself in a deep window-bench, from which she looked out into the dull, damp park— and as the library stood at right angles to the entrance front of the house she could see the doctor's broom, which had been waiting for the last two hours before the door. She was struck with his remaining so long, but at last she saw him appear in the portico, stand a moment slowly drawing on his gloves and looking at the knees of his horse, and then get into the vehicle and roll away. Isabel kept her place for half an hour. There was a great stillness in the house. It was so great that when she at last heard a soft, slow step on the deep carpet of the room, she was almost startled by the sound. She turned quickly away from the window, and saw Ralph Touchett standing there with his hands still in his pockets, but with a face absolutely void of its usual latent smile. She got up, and her movement and glance were a question. "'It's all over,' said Ralph. "'Do you mean that my uncle—' And Isabel stopped. My dear father died an hour ago. Oh, my poor Ralph! She gently wailed, putting out her two hands to him. End of chapter 19 Chapter 20 Of The Portrait of a Lady By Henry James this librivox recording is in the public domain some fortnight after this madame merle drove up in a handsome cab to the house in winchester square as she descended from her vehicle she observed suspended between the dining-room windows a large neat wooden tablet on whose fresh black ground were inscribed in white paint the words this noble freehold mansion to be sold with the name of the agent to whom application should be made. "'They certainly lose no time,' said the visitor, as, after sounding the big brass knocker, she waited to be admitted. "'It's a practical country.' And within the house, as she ascended to the drawing-room, she perceived numerous signs of abdication, pictures removed from the walls and placed upon sofas, windows undraped, and floors laid bare." Mrs. Touchett presently received her, and intimated in a few words that condolences might be taken for granted. "'I know what you're going to say. He was a very good man. But I know it better than anyone, because I gave him more chance to show it. In that, I think I was a good wife.' Mrs. Touchett added that at the end her husband apparently recognized this fact. "'He has treated me most liberally,' she said. I won't say more liberally than I expected, because I didn't expect. You know that as a general thing I don't expect. But he chose, I presume, to recognize the fact that though I lived much abroad and mingled, you may say freely, in foreign life, I never exhibited the smallest preference for anyone else." "'For anyone but yourself,' Madame Merle mentally observed, but the reflection was perfectly inaudible. I never sacrificed my husband to another." Mrs. Touchett continued with her stout curtness. "'Oh, no,' thought Madame Merle. You never did anything for another." There was a certain cynicism in these mute comments which demands an explanation, the more so as they are not in accord either with the view—somewhat superficial, perhaps—that we have hitherto enjoyed of Madame Merle's character or with the literal facts of Mrs. Touchett's history. The more so, too, as Madame Merle had a well-founded conviction that her friend's last remark was not in the least to be construed as a side-thrust at herself. The truth is that the moment she had crossed the threshold she received an impression that Mr. Touchett's death had had subtle consequences, and that these consequences had been profitable to a little circle of persons among whom she was not numbered. Of course, it was an event which would naturally have consequences. Her imagination had more than once rested upon this fact during her stay at Garden Court. But it had been one thing to foresee such a matter mentally, and another to stand among its massive records. The idea of a distribution of property—she would almost have said of spoils—just now pressed upon her senses and irritated her with a sense of exclusion. I am far from wishing to picture her as one of the hungry mouths or envious hearts of the general herd, but we have already learned of her having desires that had never been satisfied. If she had been questioned she would, of course, have admitted, with a fine, proud smile, that she had not the faintest claim to share in Mr. Touchett's relics. There was never anything in the world between us, she would have said. There was never that, poor man with a fill of her thumb and her third finger. I hasten to add, moreover, that if she couldn't at the present moment keep from quite perversely yearning, she was careful not to betray herself. She had, after all, as much sympathy for Mrs. Touchett's gains as for her losses. "'He has left me this house,' the newly-made widow said. "'But of course I shall not live in it. I've a much better one in Florence. The will was opened only three days since, but I've already offered the house for sale.' I've also a share in the bank, but I don't yet understand if I'm obliged to leave it there. If not, I shall certainly take it out. Ralph, of course, has Garden Court, but I'm not sure that he'll have means to keep up the place. He's naturally left very well off, but his father has given away an immense deal of money. There are bequests to a string of third cousins in Vermont. Ralph, however, is very fond of Garden Court, and would be quite capable of living there. in summer with a maid-of-all-work and a gardener's boy. There's one remarkable clause in my husband's will," Mrs. Touchett added. He has left my niece a fortune. A fortune? Madame Merle softly repeated. "Isabel steps into something like seventy thousand pounds. Madame Merle's hands were clasped in her lap. At this she raised them, still clasped, and held them a moment against her bosom, while her eyes, a little dilated, fixed themselves on those of her friend. "'Ah!' she cried. "'The clever creature!' Mrs. Touchett gave her a quick look. "'What do you mean by that?' For an instant Madame Merle's colour rose, and she dropped her eyes. "'It certainly is clever to achieve such results, without an effort.' "'There assuredly was no effort. Don't call it an achievement.' Madame Merle was seldom guilty of the awkwardness of retracting what she had said. Her wisdom was shown, rather, in maintaining it and placing it in a favourable light. My dear friend, Isabel would certainly not have had seventy thousand pounds left her if she had not been the most charming girl in the world. Her charm includes great cleverness. She never dreamed, I'm sure, of my husband's doing anything for her, and I never dreamed of it either, for he never spoke to me of his intention. "'Mrs. Touchett said. "'She had no claim upon him whatever. "'It was no great recommendation to him that she was my niece. "'Whatever she achieved, she achieved unconsciously.' "'Ah,' rejoined Madame Merle, "'those are the greatest strokes.' "'Mrs. Touchett reserved her opinion. "'The girl's fortunate, I don't deny that, "'but for the present she simply stupefied. "'Do you mean that she doesn't know what to do with the money?' "'That, I think, she has hardly considered. She doesn't know what to think about the matter at all. It has been as if a big gun were suddenly fired off behind her. She's feeling herself to see if she be hurt. It's but three days since she received a visit from the principal executor, who came in person, very gallantly, to notify her. He told me afterwards that when he had made his little speech she suddenly burst into tears. The money's to remain in the affairs of the bank, and she's to draw the interest.' Madame Merle shook her head with a wise and now quite benignant smile. "'How very delicious! After she has done that two or three times, she'll get used to it.' Then, after a silence, "'What does your son think of it?' she abruptly asked. "'He left England before the will was read, used up by his fatigue and anxiety, and hurrying off to the south. He's on his way to the Riviera, and I've not yet heard from him.' but it's not likely he'll ever object to anything done by his father. Didn't you say his own share had been cut down? Only at his wish. I know that he urged his father to do something for the people in America. He's not in the least addicted to looking after Number One. It depends upon whom he regards as Number One, said Madame Merle. And she remained thoughtful a moment, her eyes bent on the floor. "'Am I not to see your happy niece?' she asked at last as she raised them. "'You may see her, but you'll not be struck with her being happy. "'She has looked as solemn these three days as a Chimabue Madonna.' And Mrs. Touchett rang for a servant. Isabel came in shortly after the footman had been sent to call her, and Madame Merle thought as she appeared that Mrs. Touchett's comparison had its force— The girl was pale and grave, an effect not mitigated by her deeper mourning, but the smile of her brightest moments came into her face as she saw Madame Merle, who went forward, laid her hand on our heroine's shoulder, and after looking at her a moment, kissed her as if she were returning the kiss she had received from her at Garden Court. This was the only allusion the visitor, in her great good taste, made for the present to her young friend's inheritance. Mrs. Touchett had no purpose of awaiting in London the sale of her house. After selecting from among its furniture the objects she wished to transport to her other abode, she left the rest of its contents to be disposed of by the auctioneer, and took her departure for the continent. She was, of course, accompanied on this journey by her niece, who now had plenty of leisure to measure and weigh and otherwise handle the windfall on which Madame Merle had covertly congratulated her. Isabel thought very often of the fact of her accession of means, looking at it in a dozen different lights, but we shall not now attempt to follow her train of thought, or to explain exactly why her new consciousness was at first oppressive. This failure to rise to immediate joy was indeed but brief. The girl presently made up her mind that to be rich was a virtue because it was to be able to do, and that to do could only be sweet it was the graceful contrary of the stupid side of weakness, especially the feminine variety. To be weak was, for a delicate young person, rather graceful. But, after all, as Isabel said to herself, there was a larger grace than that. Just now, it is true, there was not much to do. Once she had sent off a check to Lily and another to poor Edith, but she was thankful for the quiet months which her morning robes and her aunt's fresh widowhood— compelled them to spend together the acquisition of power made her serious she scrutinized her power with a kind of tender ferocity but was not eager to exercise it she began to do so during a stay of some weeks which she eventually made with her aunt in paris though in ways that will inevitably present themselves as trivial they were the ways most naturally imposed in a city in which the shops are the admiration of the world and that were prescribed unreservedly by the guidance of Mrs. Touchett, who took a rigidly practical view of the transformation of her niece from a poor girl to a rich one. "'Now that you're a young woman of fortune, you must know how to play the part. I mean to play it well,' she said to Isabel once for all, and she added that the girl's first duty was to have everything handsome. "'You don't know how to take care of your things, but you must learn,' she went on. This was Isabel's second duty. Isabel submitted, but for the present her imagination was not kindled. She longed for opportunities, but these were not the opportunities she meant. Mrs Touchett rarely changed her plans, and having intended before her husband's death to spend a part of the winter in Paris, saw no reason to deprive herself, still less to deprive her companion, of this advantage though they would live in great retirement she might still present her niece informally to the little circle of her fellow-countrymen dwelling upon the skirts of the champs-elysees with many of these amiable colonists mrs touchett was intimate she shared their expatriation their convictions their pastimes their ennui isabel saw them arrive with a good deal of assiduity at her aunt's hotel and pronounced on them with a trenchancy doubtless to be accounted for by the temporary exaltation of her sense of human duty. She had made up her mind that their lives were, though luxurious, inane, and incurred some disfavour by expressing this view on a bright Sunday afternoon, when the American absentees were engaged in calling on each other. Though her listeners passed for people kept exemplarily genial by their cooks and dressmakers, Two or three of them thought her cleverness, which was generally admitted, inferior to that of the new theatrical pieces. "'You all live here this way, but what does it lead to?' she was pleased to ask. "'It doesn't seem to lead to anything, and I should think you'd get very tired of it.' Mrs. Touchett thought the question worthy of Henrietta Stackpole. The two ladies had found Henrietta in Paris, and Isabel constantly saw her so that mrs touchett had some reason for saying to herself that if her niece were not clever enough to originate almost anything she might be suspected of having borrowed that style of remark from her journalistic friend the first occasion on which isabel had spoken was that of a visit paid by the two ladies to mrs luce an old friend of mrs touchett's and the only person in paris she now went to see mrs luce had been living in paris since the days of louis philippe She used to say jocosely that she was one of the generation of 1830, a joke of which the point was not always taken. When it failed, Mrs. Luce used to explain—'Oh, yes, I'm one of the romantics.' Her French had never become quite perfect. She was always at home on Sunday afternoons, and surrounded by sympathetic compatriots, usually the same. In fact, she was at home at all times and reproduced with wondrous truth in her well-cushioned little corner of the brilliant city the domestic tone of her native Baltimore. This reduced Mr. Luce, her worthy husband, a tall, lean, grizzled, well-brushed gentleman, who wore a gold eye-glass and carried his hat a little too much on the back of his head, to mere platonic praise of the distractions of Paris. They were his great word, since you would never have guessed from what cares he escaped to them one of them was that he went every day to the american bankers where he found a post office that was almost as sociable and colloquial an institution as in an american country town he passed an hour in fine weather in a chair in the champs elysees and he dined uncommonly well at his own table seated above a waxed floor which it was mrs luce's happiness to believe had a finer polish than any other in the french capital occasionally he dined with a friend or two at the Cafe anglais for his talent for ordering a dinner was a source of felicity to his companions, and an object of admiration even to the head-waiter of the establishment. These were his only known pastimes, but they had beguiled his hours for upwards of half a century, and they doubtless justified his frequent declaration that there was no place like Paris. In no other place, on these terms, could Mr. Luce flatter himself that he was enjoying life. There was nothing like Paris, but it must be confessed that Mr. Luce thought less highly of this scene of his dissipations than in earlier days. In the list of his resources his political reflections should not be omitted, for they were doubtless the animating principle of many hours that superficially seemed vacant. Like many of his fellow colonists, Mr. Luce was a high—or rather a deep—conservative, and gave no countenance to the government lately established in France he had no faith in its duration and would assure you from year to year that its end was close at hand they want to be kept down sir to be kept down nothing but the strong hand the iron heel will do for them he would frequently say of the french people and his ideal of a fine showy clever rule was that of the superseded empire paris is much less attractive than in the days of the emperor he knew how to make a city pleasant Mr. Luce had often remarked to Mrs. Touchett, who was quite of his own way of thinking, and wished to know what one had crossed that odious Atlantic for, but to get away from Republics. "'Why, madam, sitting in the Champs-Elysées, opposite to the Palace of Industry, I've seen the court carriages from the Tuileries pass up and down as many as seven times a day. I remember one occasion when they went as high as nine. What do you see now?' "'It's no use talking. The style's all gone.' Napoleon knew what the French people want, and there'll be a dark cloud over Paris—our Paris—till they get the empire back again." Among Mrs. Luce's visitors on Sunday afternoons was a young man with whom Isabel had had a good deal of conversation, and whom she found full of valuable knowledge. Mr. Edward Rosier—Ned Rosier, as he was called—was native to New York, and had been brought up in Paris, living there under the eye of his father who as it happened had been an early and intimate friend of the late mr archer edward rosier remembered isabel as a little girl it had been his father who came to the rescue of the small archers at the inn at neufchatel he was travelling that way with the boy and had stopped at the hotel by chance after their bun had gone off with the russian prince and when mr archer's whereabouts remained for some days a mystery isabel remembered perfectly the neat little male child whose hair smelt of a delicious cosmetic, and who had a bun all his own, warranted to lose sight of him under no provocation. Isabel took a walk with the pair beside the lake, and thought little Edward as pretty as an angel—a comparison by no means conventional in her mind, for she had a very definite conception of a type of features which she supposed to be angelic, and which her new friend perfectly illustrated a small pink face surmounted by a blue velvet bonnet, and set off by a stiff embroidered collar, had become the countenance of her childish dreams, and she had firmly believed for some time afterwards that the heavenly hosts conversed among themselves in a queer little dialect of French-English, expressing the properest sentiments, as when Edward told her that he was defended by his bon to go near the edge of the lake, and that one must always obey to one's bon. Ned Rosier's English had improved, at least it exhibited in a less degree the French variation. His father was dead, and his bun dismissed, but the young man still conformed to the spirit of their teaching. He never went to the edge of the lake. There was still something agreeable to the nostrils about him, and something not offensive to nobler organs. He was a very gentle and gracious youth, with what are called cultivated tastes, an acquaintance with old china, with good wine, with the bindings of books, with the almanac de Gotha, with the best shops, the best hotels, the hours of railway trains. He could order a dinner almost as well as Mr. Luce, and it was probable that as his experience accumulated he would be a worthy successor to that gentleman, whose rather grim politics he also advocated in a soft and innocent voice. He had some charming rooms in Paris, decorated with old Spanish altar-lace, the envy of his female friends, who declared that his chimney-piece was better draped than the high shoulders of many a duchess. He usually, however, spent a part of every winter at Pau, and he had once passed a couple of months in the United States. He took a great interest in Isabel, and remembered perfectly the walk at Neufchatel, when she would persist in going so near the edge. He seemed to recognize this same tendency in the subversive enquiry that I quoted a moment ago and set himself to answer our heroine's question with greater urbanity than it perhaps deserved. What does it lead to, Miss Archer? Why, Paris leads everywhere. You can't go anywhere unless you come here first. Every one that comes to Europe has got to pass through. You don't mean it in that sense so much? You mean what good it does you? Well, how can you penetrate futurity? How can you tell what lies ahead? If it's a pleasant road I don't care where it leads. "'I like the road, Miss Archer. I like the dear old asphalt. You can't get tired of it. You can't if you try. You think you would, but you wouldn't. There's always something new and fresh. Take the Hotel Drouot now. They sometimes have three and four sales a week. Where can you get such things as you can here? In spite of all they say, I maintain they're cheaper, too, if you know the right places. I know plenty of places, but I keep them to myself.' I'll tell you, if you like, as a particular favor. Only you mustn't tell anyone else. Don't you go anywhere without asking me first. I want you to promise me that. As a general thing, avoid the boulevards. There's very little to be done on the boulevards. Speaking conscientiously, sans blog, I don't believe anyone knows Paris better than I. You and Mrs. Touchett must come and breakfast with me some day, and I'll show you my things. Je ne vous dis que ça. There has been a great deal of talk about London of late. It's the fashion to cry up London. But there's nothing in it. You can't do anything in London. No Louis XV. Nothing of the First Empire. Nothing but their eternal Queen Anne. It's good for one's bedroom, Queen Anne, for one's washing-room, but it isn't proper for a salon. Do I spend my life at the auctioneers? Mr. Rosier pursued in answer to another question of Isabel's. Oh, no, I haven't the means. I wish I had. You think I'm a mere trifler. I can tell by the expression of your face. You've got a wonderfully expressive face. I hope you don't mind my saying that. I mean it as a kind of warning. You think I ought to do something, and so do I, so long as you leave it vague. But when you come to the point you see you have to stop. I can't go home and be a shopkeeper. You think I'm very well fitted? Ah, Miss Archer, you overrate me. I can buy very well, but I can't sell. You should see when I sometimes try to get rid of my things. It takes much more ability to make other people buy than to buy yourself. When I think how clever they must be—the people who make me buy. Ah, no, I couldn't be a shopkeeper. I can't be a doctor—it's a repulsive business. I can't be a clergyman—I haven't got convictions. And then I can't pronounce the names right in the Bible. They're very difficult, in the Old Testament particularly. I can't be a lawyer. I don't understand—how do you call it—the American procedure. Is there anything else? There's nothing for a gentleman in America. I should like to be a diplomatist, but American diplomacy that's not for gentlemen, either. I'm sure if you had seen the last men— Henrietta Stackpole, who was often with her friend when Mr. Rosier, coming to pay his compliments late in the afternoon, expressed himself after the fashion I have sketched, usually interrupted the young man at this point, and read him a lecture on the duties of the American citizen. She thought him most unnatural. He was worse than poor Ralph Touchett. Henrietta, however, was at this time more than ever addicted to fine criticism, for her conscience had been freshly alarmed as regards Isabel. She had not congratulated this young lady on her augmentations, and begged to be excused from doing so. "'If Mr. Touchett had consulted me about leaving you the money—' she frankly asserted. I'd have said to him, never. I see, Isabel had answered. You think it will prove a curse in disguise? Perhaps it will. Leave it to someone you care less for. That's what I should have said. To yourself, for instance? Isabel suggested jocosely. And then, do you really believe it will ruin me? she asked in quite another tone. I hope it won't ruin you, but it will certainly confirm your dangerous tendencies. "'Do you mean the love of luxury, of extravagance?' "'No, no,' said Henrietta. "'I mean your exposure on the moral side. "'I approve of luxury. "'I think we ought to be as elegant as possible. "'Look at the luxury of our western cities. "'I've seen nothing over here to compare with it. "'I hope you'll never become grossly sensual, "'but I'm not afraid of that.' The peril for you is that you live too much in the world of your own dreams. You're not enough in contact with reality—with the toiling, striving, suffering—I may even say sinning—world that surrounds you. You're too fastidious—you've too many graceful illusions. Your newly acquired thousands will shut you up more and more to the society of a few selfish and heartless people, who will be interested in keeping them up." Isabel's eyes expanded as she gazed at this lurid scene. "'What are my illusions?' she asked. "'I try so hard not to have any.' "'Well,' said Henrietta, "'you think you can lead a romantic life, "'that you can live by pleasing yourself and pleasing others. "'You'll find you're mistaken. "'Whatever life you lead, you must put your soul in it, "'to make any sort of success of it. "'And from the moment you do that, "'it ceases to be romance, I assure you. "'It becomes grim reality. "'And you can't always please yourself.' You must sometimes please other people. That, I admit, you're very ready to do. But there's another thing that's still more important. You must often displease others. You must always be ready for that. You must never shrink from it. That doesn't suit you at all. You're too fond of admiration. You like to be thought well of. You think that we can escape disagreeable duties by taking romantic views. That's your great illusion, my dear. But we can't. You must be prepared on many occasions in life to please no one at all, not even yourself." Isabel shook her head sadly. She looked troubled and frightened. "'This, for you, Henrietta,' she said, must be one of those occasions. It was certainly true that Miss Stackpole, during her visit to Paris, which had been professionally more remunerative than her English sojourn, had not been living in the world of dreams. Mr. Bantling, who had now returned to England, was her companion in the first four weeks of her stay, and about Mr. Bantling there was nothing dreamy. Isabel learned from her friend that the two had led a life of great personal intimacy, and that this had been a peculiar advantage to Henrietta, owing to the gentleman's remarkable knowledge of Paris. He had explained everything, shown her everything, been her constant guide and interpreter. They had breakfasted together, dined together, gone to the theatre together, supped together—really, in a manner, quite lived together. He was a true friend, Henrietta more than once assured our heroine, and she had never supposed that she could like any Englishman so well. Isabel could not have told you why, but she found something that ministered to mirth in the alliance the correspondent of the interviewer had struck with Lady Pencil's brother. Her amusement, moreover, subsisted in face of the fact that she thought it a credit to each of them. Isabel couldn't rid herself of a suspicion that they were playing somehow at cross-purposes, that the simplicity of each had been entrapped. But this simplicity was on either side none the less honourable. It was as graceful on Henrietta's part to believe that Mr. Bantling took an interest in the diffusion of lively journalism and in consolidating the position of lady correspondence as it was on the part of his companion to suppose that the cause of the interviewer, a periodical of which he never formed a very definite conception, was, if subtly analysed, a task to which Mr. Bantling felt himself quite equal, but the cause of Miss Stackpole's need of demonstrative affection. Each of these groping celibates supplied at any rate a want of which the other was impatiently conscious. Mr. Bantling, who was of rather a slow and discursive habit, relished a prompt, keen, positive woman, who charmed him by the influence of a shining, challenging eye. And a kind of bandbox freshness, and who kindled a perception of raciness in a mind to which the usual fare of life seemed unsalted. Henrietta, on the other hand, enjoyed the society of a gentleman who appeared somehow, in his way, made by expensive roundabout, almost quaint processes for her use, and whose leisured state, though generally indefensible, was a decided boon to a breathless mate, and who was furnished with an easy traditional, though by no means exhaustive, answer to almost any social or practical question that could come up. She often found Mr. Bantling's answers very convenient, and in the press of catching the American Post would largely and showily address them to publicity. It was to be feared that she was indeed drifting toward these abysses of sophistication as to which Isabel, wishing for a good-humored retort, had warned her. There might be danger in store for Isabel, but it was scarcely to be hoped that Miss Stackpole, on her side, would find permanent rest in any adoption of the views of a class pledged to all the old abuses. Isabel continued to warn her good-humouredly. Lady Pencil's obliging brother was sometimes, on our heroine's lips, an object of a reverent and facetious allusion. Nothing, however, could exceed Henrietta's amiability on this point. She used to abound in the sense of Isabel's irony and to enumerate with elation the hours she had spent with this perfect man of the world, a term that had ceased to make with her, as previously, for opprobrium. Then, a few moments later, she would forget that they had been talking jocosely, and would mention with impulsive earnestness some expedition she had enjoyed in his company. She would say, "'Oh, I know all about Versailles. I went there with Mr. Bantling. I was bound to see it thoroughly. I warned him when we went out there that I was thorough, so we spent three days at the hotel and wandered all over the place. It was lovely weather, a kind of Indian summer, only not so good. We just lived in that park. Oh yes, you can't tell me anything about Versailles. Henrietta appeared to have made arrangements to meet her gallant friend during the spring in Italy. End of chapter 20 CHAPTER Twenty-One Of the Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mrs. Touchett, before arriving in Paris, had fixed the day for her departure, and by the middle of February had begun to travel southward. She interrupted her journey to pay a visit to her son, who, at San Remo, on the Italian shore of the Mediterranean, had been spending a dull, bright winter beneath a slow-moving white umbrella. Isabel went with her aunt as a matter of course, though Mrs. Touchett, with homely, customary logic, had laid before her a pair of alternatives. "'Now, of course, you're completely your own mistress, and are as free as the bird on the bough. I don't mean you were not so before, but you're at present on a different footing. Property erects a kind of barrier.' You can do a great many things if you're rich, which would be severely criticised if you were poor. You can go and come, you can travel alone, you can have your own establishment. I mean, of course, if you'll take a companion, some decayed gentlewoman with a darned cashmere and dyed hair, who paints on velvet. You don't think you'd like that? Of course, you can do as you please. I only want you to understand how much you're at liberty. You might take Miss Stackpole as your dame de compagnie, She'd keep people off very well. I think, however, that it's a great deal better you should remain with me, in spite of there being no obligation. It's better for several reasons, quite apart from your liking it. I shouldn't think you'd like it, but I recommend you to make the sacrifice. Of course, whatever novelty there may have been at first in my society is quite passed away, and you see me as I am, a dull, obstinate, narrow-minded old woman. I don't think you're at all dull. Isabel had replied to this. "'But you do think I'm obstinate and narrow-minded? I told you so,' said Mrs. Touchet, with much elation at being justified. Isabel remained for the present with her aunt, because, in spite of eccentric impulses, she had a great regard for what was usually deemed decent, and a young gentlewoman without visible relations had always struck her as a flower without foliage. It was true that Mrs. Touchett's conversation had never again appeared so brilliant as that first afternoon in Albany, when she sat in her damp waterproof and sketched the opportunities that Europe would offer to a young person of taste. This, however, was in a great measure the girl's own fault. She had got a glimpse of her aunt's experience, and her imagination constantly anticipated the judgments and emotions of a woman who had very little of the same faculty. Apart from this, Mrs. Touchett had a great merit. She was as honest as a pair of compasses. There was a comfort in her stiffness and firmness. You knew exactly where to find her, and were never liable to chance encounters and concussions. On her own ground she was perfectly present, but was never over-inquisitive as regards the territory of her neighbour. Isabel came at last to have a kind of undemonstrable pity for her. There seemed something so dreary in the condition of a person whose nature had, as it were, so little surface offered so limited a face to the accretions of human contact. Nothing tender, nothing sympathetic had ever had a chance to fasten upon it—no wind-sown blossom, no familiar softening moss. Her offered—her passive extent, in other words—was about that of a knife-edge. Isabel had reason to believe, none the less, that as she advanced in life she made more of those concessions to the sense of something obscurely distinct from convenience—more of them than she independently exacted. She was learning to sacrifice consistency to considerations of that inferior order for which the excuse must be found in the particular case. It was not to the credit of her absolute rectitude that she should have gone the longest way round to Florence in order to spend a few weeks with her invalid son since in former years it had been one of her most definite convictions that when ralph wished to see her he was at liberty to remember that palazzo crescentini contained a large apartment known as the quarter of the signorino i want to ask you something isabel said to this young man the day after her arrival at san Remo. something i've thought more than once of asking you by letter but that i've hesitated on the whole to write about Face to face, nevertheless, my question seems easy enough. Did you know your father intended to leave me so much money?" Ralph stretched his legs a little further than usual, and gazed a little more fixedly at the Mediterranean. What does it matter, my dear Isabel, whether I knew? My father was very obstinate. So, said the girl, you did know. Yes, he told me, We even talked it over a little. "'What did he do it for?' asked Isabel abruptly. "'Why, as a kind of compliment.' "'A compliment on what?' "'On your so beautifully existing.' "'He liked me too much,' she presently declared. "'That's a way we all have. "'If I believed that, I should be very unhappy. "'Fortunately, I don't believe it.' I want to be treated with justice. I want nothing but that.' "'Very good. But you must remember that justice to a lovely being is, after all, a florid sort of sentiment.' "'I'm not a lovely being. How can you say that at the very moment when I am asking such odious questions? I must seem to you delicate.' "'You seem to me troubled,' said Ralph. "'I am troubled.' "'About what?' For a moment she answered nothing. Then she broke out. "'Do you think it good for me suddenly to be made so rich? Henrietta doesn't.' "'Oh, hang, Henrietta,' said Ralph coarsely. "'If you ask me, I'm delighted at it. Is that why your father did it? For your amusement?' "'I differ with Miss Stackpole.' Ralph went on more gravely. "'I think it very good for you to have means.' Isabel looked at him with serious eyes. I wonder whether you know what's good for me, or whether you care. If I know, depend upon it, I care. Shall I tell you what it is? Not to torment yourself. Not to torment you, I suppose you mean. You can't do that. I'm proof. Take things more easily. Don't ask yourself so much whether this or that is good for you. Don't question your conscience so much. It will get out of tune like a strummed piano. Keep it for great occasions. Don't try so much to form your character. It's like trying to pull open a tight, tender young rose. Live as you like best, and your character will take care of itself. Most things are good for you. The exceptions are very rare, and a comfortable income's not one of them ralph paused smiling isabel had listened quickly you've too much power of thought above all too much conscience ralph said it's all out of reason the number of things you think wrong put back your watch die at your fever spread your wings rise above the ground it's never wrong to do that she had listened eagerly as i say and it was her nature to understand quickly. "'I wonder if you appreciate what you say. If you do, you take a great responsibility.' "'You frighten me a little, but I think I'm right,' said Ralph, persisting in cheer. "'All the same, what you say is very true,' Isabel pursued. "'You could say nothing more true.' "'I'm absorbed in myself. I look at life too much as a doctor's prescription. Why, indeed, should we perpetually be thinking whether things are good for us, as if we were patients lying in a hospital? Why should I be so afraid of not doing right? As if it mattered to the world whether I do right or wrong?" "'You're a capital person to advise,' said Ralph. "'You take the wind out of my sails.' She looked at him as if she had not heard him though she was following out the train of reflection which he himself had kindled. "'I try to care more about the world than about myself, but I always come back to myself. "'It's because I'm afraid.' She stopped. Her voice had trembled a little. "'Yes, I'm afraid. "'I can't tell you. "'A large fortune means freedom, and I'm afraid of that.' "'It's such a fine thing, and one should make such a good use of it. "'If one shouldn't, one would be ashamed. "'And one must keep thinking. "'It's a constant effort. "'I'm not sure it's not a greater happiness to be powerless. "'For weak people, I've no doubt it's a greater happiness. "'For weak people, the effort not to be contemptible must be great.' "'And how do you know I'm not weak?' Isabel asked. "'Ah!' Ralph answered with a flush that the girl noticed. "'If you are, I'm awfully sold.' The charm of the Mediterranean coast only deepened for our heroine on acquaintance, for it was the threshold of Italy, the gate of admirations. Italy, as yet imperfectly seen and felt, stretched before her as a land of promise, a land in which a love of the beautiful might be comforted by endless knowledge— Whenever she strolled upon the shore with her cousin, and she was the companion of his daily walk, she looked across the sea with longing eyes to where she knew that Genoa lay. She was glad to pause, however, on the edge of this larger adventure. There was such a thrill even in the preliminary hovering. It affected her, moreover, as a peaceful interlude, as a hush of the drum and fife in a career which she had little warrant as yet for regarding as agitated— but which nevertheless she was constantly picturing to herself by the light of her hopes, her fears, her fancies, her ambitions, her predilections, and which reflected these subjective accidents in a manner sufficiently dramatic. Madame Merle had predicted to Mrs. Touchett that after their young friend had put her hand into her pocket half a dozen times, she would be reconciled to the idea that it had been filled by a munificent uncle, and the event justified— as it had so often justified before that lady's perspicacity ralph touchett had praised his cousin for being morally inflammable that is for being quick to take a hint that was meant as good advice his advice had perhaps helped the matter she had at any rate before leaving san Remo, grown used to feeling rich the consciousness in question found a proper place in rather a dense little group of ideas that she had about herself and often it was by no means the least agreeable. It took perpetually for granted a thousand good intentions. She lost herself in a maze of visions. The fine things to be done by a rich, independent, generous girl who took a large human view of occasions and obligations were sublime in the mass. Her fortune, therefore, became to her mind a part of her better self. It gave her importance, gave her even, to her own imagination, a certain ideal beauty. What it did for her in the imagination of others is another affair, and on this point we must also touch in time. The visions I have just spoken of were mixed with other debates. Isabel liked better to think of the future than of the past, but at times, as she listened to the murmur of the Mediterranean waves, her glance took a backward flight. It rested upon two figures, which in spite of increasing distance were still sufficiently salient they were recognizable without difficulty as those of caspar goodwood and lord warburton it was strange how quickly these images of energy had fallen into the background of our young lady's life it was in her disposition at all times to lose faith in the reality of absent things she could summon back her faith in case of need with an effort but the effort was often painful even when the reality had been pleasant the past was apt to look dead and its revival rather to show the livid light of a judgment day the girl moreover was not prone to take for granted that she herself lived in the minds of others she had not the fatuity to believe she left indelible traces she was capable of being wounded by the discovery that she had been forgotten but of all liberties the one she herself found sweetest was the liberty to forget She had not given her last shilling, sentimentally speaking, either to Caspar Goodwood or to Lord Warburton, and yet couldn't but feel them appreciably in debt to her. She had, of course, reminded herself that she was to hear from Mr. Goodwood again, but this was not to be for another year and a half, and in that time a great many things might happen. She had, indeed, failed to say to herself that her American suitor might find some other girl more comfortable to woo, because— though it was certain many other girls would prove so, she had not the smallest belief that this merit would attract him. But she reflected that she herself might know the humiliation of change, might really, for that matter, come to the end of the things that were not Caspar, even though there appeared so many of them, and find rest in those very elements of his presence which struck her now as impediments to the finer respiration. It was conceivable that these impediments should some day prove a sort of blessing in disguise—a clear and quiet harbor enclosed by a brave granite breakwater. But that day could only come in its order, and she couldn't wait for it with folded hands. That Lord Warburton should continue to cherish her image seemed to her more than a noble humility or an enlightened pride ought to wish to reckon with. She had so definitely undertaken to preserve no record of what had passed between them That a corresponding effort on his own part would be eminently just. This was not, as it may seem, merely a theory tinged with sarcasm. Isabel candidly believed that his lordship would, in the usual phrase, get over his disappointment. He had been deeply affected. This she believed, and she was still capable of deriving pleasure from the belief but it was absurd that a man both so intelligent and so honourably dealt with should cultivate a scar out of proportion to any wound. "'Englishmen liked, moreover, to be comfortable,' said Isabel, and there could be little comfort for Lord Warburton in the long run in brooding over a self-sufficient American girl who had been but a casual acquaintance. She flattered herself that, should she hear from one day— to another that he had married some young woman of his own country, who had done more to deserve him, she should receive the news without a pang even of surprise. It would have proved that he believed she was firm, which was what she wished to see to him. That alone was grateful to her pride.